Oh, Christ. Another pop culture podcast taking a long, hard look at classic albums. Why in the name of Screaming Jay Hawkins would I want to listen to that? Well, for a start, we don't set out with the assumption that you like these albums, or even that you should. Temporary Fandoms is a process. We take an artist and then listen to their complete discography and try to understand the nature of their appeal. Okay, it's not quite as scientific as that. I mean, it helps if one of us liked the band in question, and the best case scenario is that by the end of it, we'll have found something to enjoy. Well, that's what I'm hoping anyway, because today we're listening to Queens of the Stone Age, and honestly, I'm not entirely sure what I think of them. What do you make of Queens of the Stone Age? Listen with us, and if you want to share your thoughts, join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash tempfans. And since you're listening to me, you've probably already figured out how you want to hear the podcast, but allow me also to mention that if you go to our Beat Rehab page, beat.rehab slash tempfans, you'll find all our past episodes too, along with a link to the Spotify versions which come edited together with actual tunes. You'll also find the Dancing About Architecture podcast, which is well worth a listen while you're waiting for the next episode of Temp Fan to drop. Enough preamble. Let's open the door to Ewan, and he'll tell you who our guests are today, and then we can start banging on about those records. Hello there, welcome to 2021 and Temporary Fandoms. Somehow we're back. Uh, we made it. We did 12, Nick, 12 episodes? 12 episodes, year? yeah. Somehow we did 12 episodes. And that was what? We did ESG, um, Butthole Surfers, Pogues, Mercury, uh, Mercury. Yep, yeah, David Bowie, uh, Yola Tengo, and Cam. Cam. I think that's everything. Okay, um... If you just had a weird echo there, that's because I was animated with my hands and pulled the microphone out of its socket. Um, hopefully, I'll fix that in the edit. Everybody is shaking their heads in disbelief already. Um, you know the drill. In a bit, we're going to basically start talking and taking you through the work of a particular artist. Um, before we do, a um, couple of things I'd like to say. Um, number one, if you like us, um, please leave a review somewhere. Um, it's really, really important. Subscriptions and algorithms and iTunes and all of that stuff. If you don't like us, don't leave a review. Um, tell your friends you don't like us. That's absolutely fine. If you're one of the many people on the internet who hates that guy who hates Can after the last episodes, hi, I'm that guy who hates Can. Um, you don't hate Can. If, <laughs> you got you got a little bit upset during Tago Mago. I, That's I not swore, hating can. I swore a lot. Um, well, anyway, I mean, if you, if you think I'm that guy, wait until the fall episodes in about two months' time. Um, if you really, 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 really like us, I mean, we're going to do this anyway because for some reason we like it, but you could go to buymeacoffee.com slash tempfans and buy us a coffee. Uh, we've been doing this for about a year now and nobody's ever bought me a coffee. Um, and that's pretty much it. You can find us at the usual places. We're on Instagram, uh, beat.rehab slash tempfans. Um, just Google us. You'll find us. Okay. Um, Nick, anything before we get on? Absolutely nothing. Fucking awesome. All right. So let's see what we've got today. Today, um, in his pod debut, um, we've got Scott Donald. Hey, Scott. Hello, hello. And who are you going to be taking us through today? 
Um, we're going to be following the immersion of Queens of the Stone Age, um, and we've put on to the beginning of that the Caius material, which starts in 1991. Uh, Queens of the Stone Age starts in 98, and through to the last album, which was Villains in 2017. And so just, just for clarity, Caius are the band that Queens of the Stone Age were formed out of. Exactly, yeah. So the sort of uh, testing ground, we could call it, for Queens of the Stone Age. Perfect, thank you. And also joining us is Queens of the Stone Age fan and self-professed gin wanker, uh, Sai. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm good. Sorry, just before we started, we couldn't work out what to say after gin. That didn't say, make, make Sai sound like a wanker. So I just went with wanker. Um, you're going to hear us all have a big roundtable after uh, Scott takes us through how many albums? How many Queens of the Stone Age albums? Uh, there are six Queens of the Stone Age albums. And obviously... Seven, seven, bit- seven, seven. seven. <laughs> <laughs> this is the part where I say, I'll edit that out, but obviously I'm not editing that out. Um, so uh, the next voice you're going to hear will be Scott taking us through Caius and Queens of the Stone Age. Um, obviously, if you're listening on Spotify, there's the playlist which will have selected tracks from uh, their career interspersed in between Scott's mellifluous Scottish tones and after all that you'll have the four of us basically telling you what we think so I'll hand you over to Scott after this sex sales I want you to picture sex sales specifically the black silhouette of a female ovum set against a red background. From the right, a single male sperm cell is penetrating the egg to form the letter Q. Queens of the Stone Age, Songs for the Deaf. This virile image comes from the platinum-selling album which, for many, has become the band's benchmark. Songs for the Deaf's message and the message from Queens of the Stone Age is, I think, simple. The message is sexy. Like their evolving Q logo, the band's lineup has changed significantly from album to album, and I'll be doing my best during this immersion to keep count. However, throughout that time, one constant has remained the band's founder, Josh Homme. The revolving studio door may have seen a whole host of influential musicians contribute to the Quatsa sound, but it's been Homme's vision at the core. Rock should be heavy enough for the boys and sweet enough for the girls. A simple statement, perhaps, for simpler times, but having it as a guiding principle set Homie on course to produce some of the deepest, grooviest sounds ever made by a guitar. The man is cool. Cool in the way that only Americans can be. He wants to be Mr. Cool, and therefore he is. Along with his long list of supporters, there are also those who have lived to regret crossing the six-foot, four-inch man's path clumsy roadies, anti-social crowd members, and, in one case, a poor female photographer, which he rightly apologised for afterwards. Homie doesn't seem to be a man you want to fuck with. I'd love to meet him, but I imagine it could be quite intimidating, and perhaps it would remain that way unless you made it into his inner circle. He may be from California, but we're not talking LA here. This is Joshua Tree in the Mojave Desert. We're talking Southern US and all that comes with it, from beefsteaks on barbecues to the eye for an eye tribalism. 
Together, we will examine this not-so-gentle giant sound in all its heaviness and sweetness by looking briefly at its origins in Caius and then its development in Queens of the Stone Age. There will also be a brief nod to the various other desert sounds and side project that Homi has added his ginger spice to. For this immersion, as well as plundering the usual sources like Wikipedia and Reddit, I've leaned heavily on Joel McIver's biography, No One Knows. It's been an excellent source of material, and while I don't entirely agree with all of his opinions, and I've expanded on a couple of areas, he nevertheless did a great job of narrating the band's history up until 2013. So, can you smell the gasoline? Can you taste the dust? Can you feel the bass rumbling across the scorched earth? Line up those shot glasses, because for this immersion, the suggested pairing is tequila on the rocks. If there's an electric guitar sitting near you, pick it up. Any guitar. Homie isn't a guitar snob. Run a plectrum down the strings and listen to that nice, crisp, standard tuning. Now, grab that first tuning peg for the E string and take it down a whole step to a D. Feeling loosey-goosey? We're not finished. Do it again. Don't stop turning until it's all the way down to a subterranean sea. Unscrew those other five pegs until they're down two whole steps too, and for the pied de resistance, take the guitar lead, plug it into a bass amp, and turn that gain way up. We've now taken our first step into understanding Josh Homme's guitar sound. Over the years, he would develop this sound through various pedals and settings, which he still keeps pretty close to his chest, but for his early material, there's not really much going on here apart from the tuning, the bass amp, and his trusty, and now much sought after, Ovation guitar. I don't know if it's the overdriven bass sound, or something about the levels at the mixing desk, but Caius's stoner rock always sounds oddly suppressed to me, in a good way. You're undoubtedly listening to hard rock, but it's such a solid block of noise that nothing really jumps out to scare you or begin to grate like it can with some metal bands. That's not to say there aren't similarities with other metal bands. Caius were often compared to Black Sabbath, who are sometimes credited with creating the first stoner rock album. However, Homi never really acknowledges the Black Sabbath comparison. Despite other band members being big metal fans, Homi and Caius frontman John Garcia didn't really like any comparisons to metal, attributing their influences more to punk bands like Black Flag, Minor Threat, Ramones, Misfits, which may well explain why I like them. Feel free to have a Google at the term stoner rock. The term is often used synonymously with desert rock, which I perhaps prefer, but both help paint a fuzzy picture of an exotic sound I don't quite understand. Is this what the desert sounds like? Is this the type of music that Americans listen to, stoned? It was hip-hop and reggae all the way where I grew up. Either way, neither of them are terms the band particularly embraced, so I'm not going to dwell on them. Our story starts in Palm Desert, California, where the young Josh Homme has little else to do except fry under the desert sun. He had asked his parents for a drum kit to entertain himself, but was refused. I've heard him say that he always feels like a drummer or percussionist at heart, which might go some way to explaining his rhythm-heavy guitar style. Instead of drums, he was given the Ovation guitar at the age of nine after taking up polka lessons. <laughs> 
1985, at the age of 12, he joined his first band, Autocracy, which was perhaps a slight bit of foreshadowing considering his future role in Queens of the Stone Age. At 14, he started playing with drummer Brad Bjork and bass player Chris Cockrell. The band were called Katzenjama, a German word which translates as caterwauling, uh, an old word I believe for hangover. This was long before the Norwegian band formed. Also present was soon-to-be-replaced bassist Nick Oliveri. All they needed was a frontman, step up, John Garcia. I played football with Nick Oliveri and Brant Bjork and Chris Cockrell, the original bass player. Nick kept bugging me to see his band, Katzenjammer, play. This is when they still jammed in Brant's room. So one day, me and my buddy went up there, and that was it for me. I wanted a piece of it. At an early rehearsal, Garcia recalls, They were playing this mean, heavy, fast punk rock music. Wow, I started saying this really fast punk rock style. Blah, 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 blah. And Brant stopped right after the first verse, and he goes, No, John, try singing like this. And he started singing this really beautiful melody. And I said, well, fuck, you want me to really sing? Vocals honed, it was already time for a name change. And Brant Bjork decided upon Sons of Caius, taking it from an undead monster found in the first edition of the advanced Dungeons and Dragons book, Fiendfolio. Cool. They self-released an eponymous debut EP featuring Chris Cockrell on bass. But our main immersion starts with the first album, Wretch, by which time Cockrell had been replaced by Nick Oliveri, the man who was destined to cause deep division among Quatsa fans. Following the EP, the band gradually built a local following in Pan Desert and frequently performed at parties in and around the isolated towns of Southern California's desert areas. With little to do in their hometowns, locals would escape to the wide expanse of the desert at nightfall. These impromptu and predominantly outdoor shows were referred to locally as generator parties due to the gasoline-powered generators used to provide electricity for the equipment. They have since become exaggerated into festival-sized myths, but here Nick Oliveri recalls their true small-town feel. There would be three or four bands, a keg of beer and a raging bonfire. We were all underage, people would run around naked and there was sand everywhere, in your amps, in your ass. As well as the underage drinking and sandy asses, there are also stories of drugs, meth labs and Mexican gangbangers too. The desert terrain was ideal for escaping cops, whose patrol cars were no match for the party goers 4x4s. Homie commented that playing in the desert was the shaping factor for the band, noting there's no clubs here, so you can only play for free. If people don't like you, they'll tell you, you can't suck. It was after these desert gigs that their future producer, Chris Goss, saw them, after getting his hands on a demo from BMI. As they branched out, Goss also saw them playing the LA circuit, where Homie would apparently help set up lighting at raves in exchange for free ecstasy. Their break came at Hollywood's Raji's Club, where they played for the chameleon label president, Bob Buziak. He was suitably impressed and signed them under subsidiary label, Dally Records. It was agreed that the name Sons of Caius was too clunky and it was shortened to Caius. Using material from their first EP, the band produced their first full-length album, Wretch. Wretch has its moments but still sounds like a band in progress. It didn't do much to impress the scene and it failed to capture the raw energy that was being unleashed at their live gigs. 
I've sadly only been allowed by the podcasting powers to choose two Caius songs for the Spotify playlist, which is a shame because my affection for Caius has really grown since we did the original immersion. So in my pettiness, I decided not to choose the excellent punk rock track Katzenjammer from the debut, but I've instead chosen Big Bikes, which is a song about wanting some quote-unquote pussy from a quote-unquote bitch on a big bike. I also have to skim through the three other Caius albums, which means I can't tell you about the importance of the producer Chris Goss. You don't get to hear me wax lyrical about their best album, the follow-up, Blues for the Red Sun. Although, if you're on Spotify, you do get to hear one of my favourite tracks from it. No, you don't get to find out why Oliveri left, what his replacement Scott Reader added, and why that makes any hope of a reunion pretty messy. Wouldn't you like to know about the Metallica gig Caius supported? The one where the Metallica sound guy let Caius play full blast the first night before realising it was going to make Metallica look like shit? Well, you can't hear about that. Or Bjork's departure. Or future Quatza drummer Alfredo Hernandez replacing him for their third album, Welcome to Sky Valley. I suppose you'd like to know about the drug and margarita fueled parties and the pretty aptly named final Caius album, and the circus leaves town, but no, I'm not telling you anything about any of that. What I can tell you is that in 1995, with four albums to their name, four music videos, four different lineups, and one single, the demonic desert dweller Caius was defeated. Defeated by boredom. Quotes from band members about the split emphasise wanting to quit while the going was good, fear of the competition, the punk rock guilt of not wanting to sell out and wanting to try something else. Well, it would take a while before Homie discovered what that something else was, but he remembers the catalyst that made him want to quit Caius. I was disillusioned. Punk rock had blown up in my face, and then I heard Iggy Pop's Lust for Life and The Idiot for the first time. If you're in a band, those lyrics hit you. They were so true. Iggy and the Stooges said everything I wanted to say better than I could say it. It made me want to quit, so I did. Homie's Iggy Pop epiphany sent the 21-year-old wandering off to Seattle around Caius' breakup in 95-96. Homie liked the idea of being in a place where the music was feeling a bit lost, like he was. Seattle was still recovering from grunge fever and it seemed like the perfect place. Despite a few trips back to the desert to escape Seattle's cold winters, he seems to have enjoyed his time there. He even applied to the University of Washington to study business, but decided to postpone the application when he met Mark Lanigan, then frontman of The Screaming Trees. Lanigan had asked Dinosaur Jr's Mike Johnson to tour with The Screaming Trees, but the more subdued Johnson told him, absolutely not, you're insane. But my friend will do it, and thus Homie and Lanigan were introduced. Homie revelled in his chance to get back in the saddle, and was particularly taken with the position of rhythm guitarist. Two years and all I did was smoke pot, play music and read books. It was great to be with the trees and not have any responsibility. I was just there to add more sound to the live show. Intending to do Lollapalooza and one tour before going back to school, Homie had another revelation. Somewhere in New Mexico, I had this epiphany. I was like, what am I doing going to school? Who cares if there's too many bands? Who cares if no one else likes my music? That's what I hated about punk rock, trying to anticipate what someone you don't know might think, the they theory. I dropped all that shit. 
left that attitude behind. In 1996, an eponymous EP by a band called Gamma Ray was released, and people said, hey, it's the guys from Caius in a new band. But wait, who's that providing the sweet falsetto-style vocals? Why, if it isn't Caius's main man on guitar, Josh Homme. Yes, back in 1995, Homme had flown John Garcia from Caius and Chris Goss up to Seattle to work with him. While recording the EP, Garcia was on backing vocals, while Homie took the lead. Garcia found the idea of the studio role reversal funny. Many people were taken aback to hear Homie sing, but it was no surprise for Garcia, who was used to him singing the Caius lyrics in the studio, to teach Garcia the melodies. I always wondered throughout the entire Caius years why he even needed me, John Garcia. On side A of the Gamma Ray EP was If Only Everything, later re-recorded as If Only. And on the other side was the hip-swivelling Born to Hula, later re-recorded for B-sides and bonus material. In 1997, we then had a fantastic untitled split album between Caius and someone called, you guessed it, Queens of the Stone Age. Why the name change? Well, Homie had been sent a cease and desist order from a German power band, Gamory. Here's more of the Homie quote from my overview. Kings would be too macho. The kings of the Stone Age wear armour and have axes and wrestle. The queens of the Stone Age hang out with the kings of the Stone Age's girlfriends when they wrestle. And also, it was a name given to us by Chris Goss. Rock should be heavy enough for the boys and sweet enough for the girls. That way, everyone's happy, and it's more of a party. Kings of the Stone Age is too lopsided. Personally, I think it's a cool, well-intentioned name. It's never quite clear whether Queens is meant to refer to royal family queens or really fabulous queens, but there's a note in the bio about someone making a limp-wristed skeleton model in the studio one time, so I suspect it's a bit of both. Either way, it was an attempt to turn down the macho from the days of Caius and songs such as Big Bikes. So, with Garcia's one-off backing vocals, Vic the Stick in Drizzle on drums and Van Connor on bass, we have lineup number one for the untitled Queens of the Stone Age and Caius split album. The new record label Electra took If Only Everything and Born to Hula from the Gamma Ray EP and added a third track. Spiders and Vinegaroons. Bits of this split album are out there in the real world and online and I recommend you go find it. Spiders and Vinegaroons is an especially odd track. On the split, you can literally feel the shift from Caius to Queens of the Stone Age begin. However, our Queens of the Stone Age immersion proper begins with album number one, Queens of the Stone Age, self-titled released in 1998. After the release of the Caius Quartza split in December 1997, anticipation began to build. Homie's new outfit were testing new material at live gigs, one of which was attended by Peril Jam guitarist Steve Gossard. Gossard swooped in and offered Homie a deal with his small label, Loose Groove, which was exactly the kind of major label avoidance Homie had been looking for. The majors play games. We play music, Josh Homie. 
The final recording of the album took place at Monkey Studios in Palm Springs in April 98. The absence of Garcia and the other split collaborators means we can officially call this Quetzal lineup number two. But deciphering who actually did what is not so straightforward. Homi appears to have done almost everything, including bass under the pseudonym Carlo. Hernandez is back on drums. Chris Goss didn't produce, but he appears to have helped out with the bass and backing vocals on a couple of tracks. The overleaf I'm looking at is in Spanish and also credits Hutch Frente, presumably that is Patrick Hutch Hutchinson, who is also credited for playing piano on the final track, I Was a Teenage Hand Model. Yo fui un modelo de mano adolescente. Hutch had been the sound man for Caius. He's also responsible for producing novel stage props and lighting, some of which I've been lucky enough to see firsthand. In some ways, he's considered to be part of Queens of the Stone Age, lasting a lot longer than many of the other contributors. I Was a Teenage Hand Model is the only track not recorded at Monkey Studios and was instead made back during the desert sessions at Rancho de la Luna. The desert sessions were a very important part of the Quartz's story and one we don't have time for, but I highly recommend doing your own research if you don't know about them. Another contributor to that song is the Answer Machine recording of Nick Oliveri agreeing to be in the band. You can just about hear it over the very, very loud whirring and beeping at the end of the album. Despite not playing on the album, Oliveri had been invited to join Homie's new outfit back in March 97. Homie had been playing at South by Southwest in Texas when he heard that Oliveri was next door with his new band, Mondo Generator. I said to some friends, let's go see my friend Nick's band. We walk in and Nick is completely naked except for a pair of black Converse and black socks. I am exchanging looks with Fredo, then Nick lights this piece of paper on fire, puts something in his mouth and turns around and blows the fire right into the audience right through all these record people and they're like ah I looked over at Fredo and I'm like dude I'm calling in Nick right now Nick's inclusion would bring us to lineup number three the lineup that began touring the album in 1998 with occasional appearances from Dave Catching on guitar so lineup 3.5 there the question often posed was how are Queens of the Stone Age different from Caius Homie's replies often contains words like tighter, stripped down, transient, robotic. We wanted to get away from Caius and not be Caius too. The reception from Caius fans was mixed, which was fine with Homie. I've always been into frustrating some percentage of the audience. I'm sure some Caius fans were disappointed, but it seems most are not. In a way, I want some to be disappointed a little. We can't be the same band forever. The debut self-titled album was remastered and re-released in 2011 on Homie's own label and featured several of the aforementioned B-sides. Album number two, Rated R, released in 2000. Nicotine, Valium, Vicodin, Marijuana, Ecstasy, Alcohol, uh, can't remember, there's there's another one. Uh, I'll come back to it. Off the back of their debut album, Quatsa hit the road in 1999 and began extensive touring in the US and Europe with the likes of Smashing Pumpkins and Ween. 
Their popularity was growing, but it seemed that the desire to adhere to so-called punk ethics and small labels was waning. It was time to embrace something corporate. So that year, when Interscope came a-knocking, Homme said yes. Interscope are alright. I think we came to the label because of their ability to push bands like Primus, which isn't necessarily a band I like, but they're really bizarre. Josh Homme there, almost complimenting Primus. Sadly, drummer Alfredo Hernandez said no. The touring and growing pressure wasn't for him, and so the position was given to Gene Troutman, lineup number four. Troutman had played with Caius for a couple of weeks in the early days and was apparently disappointed when Hernandez was chosen over him. All I can say is, he's a really nice guy, because I fucking met him in a skanky noodle bar next to a club in Glasgow. Oh yeah. Oliveri was fully on board now, taking up the role of scary angry man to Homie's sweeter, more romantic role. Unlike with Caius, there was a move to get Oliveri sharing vocals with Homie from the start. We'll even do a duet with Donna Summer, Homie said, in an attempt to show just how willing the band were to push boundaries. I don't know if Miss Summer was ever contacted, but Oliveri certainly got his chance to shine on the album. The new record landed during the infamous new metal wave, but Quatsa were determined to stay clear of it. Oliveri said he could appreciate why the kids liked it, but that it was too angry for him and not his cup of tea. Strong words indeed. So, instead of hiring a DJ and singing about cars rolling, 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 Quatsa took their solid, heavy sound from their debut album to the legendary Sound City and decided to lighten it up with some crisper, catchier choruses. To counterbalance this, they also let loose with some more experimental outliers to ensure that their sound remained tricky to pigeonhole. The band members listed on the album are Homi, Oliveri, Troutman, along with favourites Goss, Bacchus producer, Johnson and Catching. As well as the usual desert dwellers, the album also included a special rock and roll guest, but more on that in a second. We also had Mark Lanigan provided some amazing lead vocals and backing vocals. Personally, I think Lanigan provides a nice bridge between Homie's soft vocals and Oliveri's screaming, and despite taking lead only on a few Quatsa tracks, it definitely feels like he leaves his mark. There are several other personnel credits on the album too, various backing vocals and instruments that contributed to the record and went on to tour it, so line up 4.5. Rated R was accidentally released under the name 2 before some hasty correction. It came with a single released in August 2000, The Lost Art of Keeping a Secret. Here's a homie quote on the song from the biography in response to a question about whether he'd been surprised that it was a hit. It's not a hit type song because it's not for kids. A record company were like, hmm, this is going to be a hit. And I'm like, a hit with whom? It's about fucking. 21 year olds, maybe, they were trying to shove it down the throats of 13 year olds. In fact, the name had been chosen due to Homie's prescient musings about censorship. Specifically, that people seem to be more interested in blanket banning words with no consideration of intent or context. He even used the album title as part of his defence when the complaints about its explicit content rolled in. The clues in the name, Rated R. 
This was further compounded by the second single from the album, which was to cause a whole host of other controversy. The entire lyrics are simply a short list of drugs repeated over and over. Nicotine, Valium, Vicodin, Marijuana, Ecstasy, Alcohol and Cocaine. That was it. Here are six sexy factoids about the track in question. Fact number one. Judas Priest singer Rob Halford is the aforementioned rock and roll special guest. He had been in Sound City and was hanging out with Chris Goss and he was asked if he would sing on the album. When he was given the lyrics, he joked, Oh, a rock and roll cocktail. I think I invented that. So it's Halford you hear on the final hist cocaine and whispering throughout the song. Fact number two. Tommy felt that the song itself was an attempt to play around with the stoner rock label that he'd never quite taken to. The song obviously did nothing to dispel the idea of Quatsa being a drug band. Question on the topic of drugs, Homie often responds by saying something like he is libertarian. Fact number three. Shops like Walmart were predictably unhappy with the track being on the album, but music critics were largely positive with what Homie called his social experiment. Fact number four. The song gets a nice reprise later in the album and features again, in a way, on the next album. Fact number five. Despite all the fuss, it was used in a video by Colorado Police Department and other police departments to demonstrate the dangers of drunk driving. Something Homie seemed to really relish. Fact number six. My favourite fact is that they tried to open a set with it in 2007 at a rehab clinic in LA and were immediately chucked out by security. This begs the question, who would book Quatsa to play in a rehab clinic? Who would book anyone to play in a rehab clinic? If their debut album had put Queens of the Stone Age on the map, then Rated R put a big blue pin in it. It may have failed to reach the Billboard 200 in the US, but UK fans were lapping it up, with the album peaking at 54 in the mainstream UK chart and doing even better on the alt-rock scene. The band won Best International Newcomer at the Kerrang Awards in 2000 and over 20 years later, several critics still cite it as one of the best albums of the decade. Album number three, Songs for the Deaf, released in 2002. In the first part of this podcast, I said that this album is considered by many as the band's benchmark. From the Sperm and Egg album art, arguably the most fun incarnation of the Quatsa Q, to the music videos which were played endlessly on channels like Kerrang, both have really become integral parts of the band's image. But the album's magic is, of course, the music. And this was the soundtrack to the house parties of my teenage years. Empties, as we called them in Scotland, because they're empty of parents. Speakers blared, bodies danced, heads banged, people banged. So, how did this magical banging teenage party album come about? Well, off the back of Rated R, it was time for Queens of the Stone Age to hit the road once again. They stopped at Big Day Out in the UK, where Nick Oliveri got in trouble with the police. Then they went to Lollapalooza in Brazil, where Nick Oliveri got in trouble again with the police, this time for getting naked on stage. A semi-regular feature of performances, but after disrobing during this gig, he was dragged in front of a judge whose daughter was apparently at the show, 
He was made to formally apologise, citing ignorance of their laws around decency and blaming the hot weather. Homie found it funny, but his tolerance for Oliveri's unpredictability and behaviour had its limits, as we will soon see. Further touring, Homie got Mark Lanigan back on board. This time, as biographer Joe McIver puts it, he was a full-blown queen. This may be an intermediary step before the Songs for the Deaf lineup, but it's a bona fide lineup five, as far as I'm concerned. Then, after Quartz had toured with the Foo Fighters in late 2000, Homie made the shock announcement in 2001 that Grohl would be joining the band on their new album. Oh, what's that you say, grumpy Dave Grohl haters? I can't hear you over the sound of Dave Grohl's fucking amazing drumming. Grohl had wanted to play on Rated R, but it seemed that Homie had reservations about using Grohl's name to catapult the band. The success of the album Sans Grohl meant that it was all aboard the Dave Express for Songs for the Deaf, especially after it emerged that Troutman, uh, the drummer I met, I'm not, I don't know if I mentioned that, well, he had other commitments. Homie recalls, Troutman had all these other obligations when we started working on the band, so by day seven, it was time for him to go. I called up Dave and said, can you come right now? It was noon, and he said, I'll be there by 6.30, and by 8pm, we had tracked a few songs. Foo's fans were a little concerned that Grohl wouldn't return. Even their drummer, Taylor Hawkins, nice guy, met him too, suggested they were maybe questioning Dave's priorities. There were several other additional musicians on the album, but the most important were multi-instrumentalist Natasha Schneider, who is the radio DJ inviting you to crawl into her womb, and Alan Johannes. They, along with Joey Castillo and Troy Van Leeuwen, who toured with the album, are names we will be hearing again soon. I'm going to condense these complex studio and touring timelines, lump these guys, Dave Grohl and Mark Lanigan together, and proclaim lineup number six, regarded by many as their best lineup. Unlike the previous Quatsa albums, Songs for the Deaf was recorded at the site Conway and Barefoot Recording Studios in California. For production, Quatsa originally hired Eric Valentine when they recorded in November 2001. But they were unhappy with his job and in the spring they returned to old faithful Chris Goss. Homie remembers the recording process positively and describes tweaking the final product behind the desk as like a Rubik's Cube. You know when it's done. I bet that's the type of certainty many artists would kill for. The concept for the album was a drive through the desert. One explanation for the title Homie gave was that the sound engineer Hutch apparently used to work at dance parties for deaf people where the bass would be turned right up and the deaf dancers held balloons to help fuel the vibrations. Sounds pretty cool to me. And now, are you sitting down? Because it's time for a proper little factoid. If you own the CD of this album, and if you've the right type of player, you can rewind it from the start to about minus 135 and let it play. From there you will discover the hidden track, track zero, the real song for the deaf, which starts with, huh, what, and continues with a low frequency bass build up. There you go. Well, with Grohl, Oliveri, Lanigan and Homie hyping up the record, fans were ready to get their hands on a copy of the album. It peaked at 17 on the Billboard 200 chart and eventually reached gold status in the US. The usual reviewers went mad for the album, and on Metacritic it was rated 89 out of 100, making it the third highest rated album of 2002. 
Tracks from Rated R may have seeped their way onto dance floors and out of radios, but it was songs for the deaf that exploded all over the masses. Album number four, Lullabies to Paralyze, released in 2005. Now is when our desert cruising Chevrolet hits some bumps in the road. For a couple of reasons, this album is often, I think unfairly, maligned by fans. Granted, it isn't as consistent as its predecessor, but in amongst the mediocre tracks, there are a few that are just brilliant. The first blow to the album's fortunes came when Dave Grohl said goodbye and returned to Foo Fighters. Despite the fact there had never been any guarantee that he was there to stay, the band members seemed to take his decision to leave quite hard. This might have been partly because of their long-standing relationship with him, but mostly because of how much they respected him as a drummer and musician. Oliveri put it bluntly. I was pissed off for a minute. I was like, motherfucker, don't leave now. I kept telling myself, don't get spoiled, don't get too used to this guy playing the drums, but I couldn't help it. Homie expressed this in another way, by finally showing some cracks in his ever-changing lineup philosophy. He said, I'm starting to get sick of showing people songs. Dave's departure had sent Homie looking for a bit more permanence, and that's exactly what he found. After trying out Kelly Scott from Failure, Homie fell for ex-Danzig drummer Joey Castillo, after apparently hearing him play for only a fraction of a song. Castillo embarked with them on their biggest tour the next day, making this lineup number seven. It was a gamble that would pay off and see Castillo as the main Quatza drummer for the next decade. Homie also managed to get himself a rock and roll girlfriend in the form of the beautiful and talented Brody Dahl of the Distillers. Dahl was going through a messy divorce with her soon-to-be ex-husband Tim Armstrong from Rancid at the time. When Homie and Dahl appeared in a picture in Rolling Stone, Armstrong and his fans hit back. Homie recounted, I got all kinds of threats. They were saying, we're gonna kill you. And I'm saying, I'm six foot five and I have red hair and I'm not hiding. Go ahead. I didn't steal anybody's anything. I think if TMZ had existed back then, they would have been all over this story. As I said before, Homie doesn't take kindly to perceived slights. The impression I get of him is that he has a very strong honor code, especially surrounding his friends, his fans, his band, and his now ex-wife. He and Dal married in 2007 and separated in 2019. Sadly, TMZ were there to report on the breakup. The problem with these different allegiances is that conflicts can arise between them, which brings us to the most significant and controversial lineup change, the firing of Oliveri. In 2004, Homie drove round to Oliveri's house and told him it was over. According to Homie, he looked him in the eye and told him he was fired, something which he always maintains was very hard to do as they had been friends since they were kids. Oliveri muddies the water slightly by saying that Homie had also told him queens were over too and the split seemed to be acrimonious for a short time. So why was Oliveri fired? Well, his role as the bad boy had apparently crossed the line. This isn't too surprising if you read into his history. Certainly his run-ins with the police would continue for years to come, and there are various rumours floating around, such as the suggestion Brody Dow wasn't his biggest fan. However, Joe McIver, the Queens of the Stone Age biographer, doesn't address the more unsavoury rumours when discussing the firing. 
Given that the biography includes an interview with Oliveri, perhaps we shouldn't be too surprised by that. Instead, McIver states that the final straw was an incident when Oliveri threw bottles of Corona beer, uh, full bottles of Corona beer, at one of their audiences. Homie claimed that the upheaval caused by the Oliveri firing was personal and wouldn't affect the band because he did 90% of the writing anyway. However, many fans see Lullabies to Paralyze as an inferior album and believe Oliveri's absence was a part of this. I disagree. In between touring as Queens of the Stone Age and new side project Eagles of Death Metal, the recording for Lullabies was done back at good old Sound City with producer Joe Baresi. Line up number 8. The new album consisted of core members Homie, Joey Castillo, Troy Van Leeuwen and Lanigan. Even though after recording Lanigan leaves the band, he returns in later albums with writing and backing vocal credits. There's also a kind of second tier of regulars who record and tour but are labelled as guests in the credits like Alan Johannes, Dave Catching and Chris Goss. Then you have the final tier of new or fringe recruits. Some of them are predictable, some of them are surprises. Brody Dahl, Billy Gibbons, Shirley Manson, Jack Black, whose hand claps maybe you'll recognise on Burn the Witch, and JC Hughes, lead singer of Eagles of Death Metal. Met him too. Uh, apparently he provided flute on the album. Natasha Schneider doesn't contribute to the album, but she did join them for the tours. Tragically, Schneider died from cancer in 2008 and messages were posted by the band in remembrance. It's really a testament to her that despite the ever-evolving lineup, Natasha Schneider feels like an integral part of their story. Lullabies to Paralyze pushed the Queens of the Stone Age sound in terms of pop. You've got three singles, Little Sister, In My Head and Burn the Witch, but also in terms of their darker sounds, particularly in the second half of the album. Critics were generally very positive about the album, giving it only slightly lower marks than its predecessors. In the end, perhaps it was the fans who were the harsher. I'm looking at you, Oliveri fans. Album number 5, Era Vulgaris, released in 2007. Whisperings of an album began as far back as 2005, with Dave Grohl telling Mojo that he was going to be working on a project with Homie and the bassist from Led Zeppelin, John Paul Jones. It emerged later that Paul McCartney had asked Dave Grohl if they were looking for a basis for the project and Grohl had to tell him that, sorry, John Paul Jones had already said yes. But this wasn't to be the next Queens of the Stone Age album. This album was to be a self-titled side project called Them Crooked Vultures. The Queens of the Stone Age biographer considers this album as Queens in all but name. I would take issue with that, but I definitely agree that it's bordering on Quartz Canon. Have a listen, decide for yourself. As for the next Queen's studio album, Homie had started casting the net out for collaborators early on. He got his then-wife Brodie Dow returning for backing vocals, along with Liam Lynch and Serena Sims, lead singer of Sweethead. They all contributed to Make It With You, which had finally schmoozed its way off of the Desert Sessions recordings. Mark Lanigan returned for harmony vocals on Run Pig Run, Julian Casablancas provided synth guitar and vocals for Sick Sick Sick, and Trent Reznor played on the title track. Alan Johannes and Chris Goss were back, covering all the bases, while Homie held on to Troy and Joy Castillo. In recognition of the fact that Homie kept these core members, I've decided that this should be labelled Lineup 8.5. 
Actually, Homie had started becoming increasingly more humble about the band's revolving door, describing it more and more as an unintentional feature of the band, but one which he felt they might as well use to their advantage. The album title, as I'm sure you educated listeners know, is Latin for Common Era. Here is a homie quote about it, in which he makes some pretty prescient comments, remember this is 2007, about what would become clear stereotypes of millennials and our modern world of fake news. Here's homie. It sounds like the vulgar era, which I like, because that sounds like something that I'd like to be a part of. I mean, I think we're in it, and I'm stoked, because I think a generation doesn't want to be dot workers or coal miners, they want to delay adolescence and prolong adolescence, prolong thought about what to do and try to take advantage of life while it's around. Take more artistic jobs like working at Pitchfork, playing rock music, and I totally understand that. And I also think it's an age of disinformation, where it's not like it's being kept from you, it's more like it's being piled on top of you. Wow, that was 2007. The loose idea for this album was about a drive around Hollywood, and so contains themes about being in the limelight. It doesn't present itself as a concept album though, so don't be expecting any radio DJs this time. The album was recorded with exactly zero input from the record label Interscope between July 2006 and April 2007 at Cherokee Studios in Hollywood, Steakhouse Studios in Los Angeles, and back at Sound City Studios in Van Nuys. There were also some versions put out on Homie's own label, Records Records. This was to be the last studio album with Interscope as they switched to Matador for the next two albums, for reasons unknown. Promotion for the album was stepped up for the digital age, with snippets of audio and video being released on YouTube. Then a fan site, thefade.com, offered the chance to win a special package, which turned out to be a CD called You Know What You Did, with just one single on it. Era Vulgaris. Included with the CD was a weird, rambling letter about how you should share it with all your friends. In an odd move that I was hitherto unaware of, all non-UK releases of the album would be without the title track, which is unfortunate because the Era Vulgaris track really does well to boost what I feel are some of the weaker ones at the end. Reception to the album was mixed. Publications like Q kept up their reputation for being absolute dicks and gave it 2 out of 5. The Guardian weren't impressed either, but took up the all-familiar cry of It's missing all the fairy! Yawn. Overall, there was plenty of love and record sales for the album, but it just wasn't going to reach the giddy heights of Songs for the Deaf. Album number 6, Like Clockwork, released in 2013. Up until now, Homie has been a prolific song producing machine, averaging an album every two years since 1991. Quotes of fans, however, would have to wait six years for today's album. So, why the long delay? Well, in 2010, after the Them Crooked Vultures tour ended, reports surfaced of a medical emergency involving Josh Homme and a routine knee operation gone wrong. The band's biographer recounts, Homme's heart stopped for a short period. Revived by the medical team with a defibrillator, he woke to find that it had been an extremely close call. The proverbial, died for two minutes, reported by rock stars from Nicky Six to Phil Anselmo. Although in those cases, the near-death experience was the result of drug abuse. Homie was just getting his knee fixed. 
Afterwards, he was plunged into depression and a struggle with the dreaded MRSA infection. Homme thought that his career was over. If that sounds a bit mad and hard to believe, then you can give yourself a pat on the back. Your bullshit detector is clearly in fine working order because on the 2016 podcast, Let There Be Talk, Homme partially reveals the following when he was pressed to go on record about what actually happened. It wasn't my knee. I don't know why somebody thought that, but it doesn't matter. I was in too deep. I don't really want to go into it in total detail, but I got lost. After years of wanting to be something for everybody that you care about, you start to break apart after a while. This is said on this podcast as part of a larger context about drugs, where Homie remained characteristically evasive about admitting specifics, but it seemed clear to me that there had been some kind of breakdown and that some sort of substances must have been involved. Eventually, through cathartic talks with Trent Reznor and encouraged by Brody Dow, Homie began writing music again, beginning with The Vampire of Time and Memory. I hated it, Homie recounted. I thought, who wants to hear this? Then Brody reminded me, who fucking cares? You've got to start somewhere, and the bottom can be a really great place. And so we arrive at that well-worn question, does good art tend to come from places of anguish and strife? Despite the cliché that this question has become, I personally don't get bored of it. There are just so many examples of good art which has come from bad places. And that goes for this album too. Old wounds were beginning to be picked at on the Caius front as well. Oliveri, Bjork and Garcia had been playing Caius material together at gigs. They seemed to be holding out for some involvement from Homie, but when it didn't materialise, the newly dubbed Caius Lives announced they would be recording a new album. In response, Homie and former bassist Scott Reader filed a trademark infringement suit against Bjork and Garcia. Oliveri quickly split after that. Caius Lives was advised by the courts to change their name and so became Vista Chino. Their album Peace was released in 2013. Back on Queensland, things were taking shape with a shiny new lineup number 9, easily classifiable with a big round number due to the fact that Joey Castillo was finally dismissed for reasons unknown. After he laid down some tracks for the new album at Homie's own studio, Pink Duck, he was replaced by the return of The Grohl. Also squeezing himself onto the new album's percussion was John Theodore, who was to be Castillo's permanent replacement. I'm going to class this final switch in drummers as lineup number 10, as Grohl was basically the studio drummer and Theodore the live drummer. Troy and Homie also adopted multi-instrumentalists Dean Fertitta and Michael Schumann, who took over bass. Lanigan and Reznor returned for backing vocals, and so did Nick Oliveri. Guest appearances on the album in the order of What The Fuck were Charlie May from Spooky, James Lavelle from Uncle, Philip Shepard from Blockbuster Film Soundtracks, Jake Shears from Scissor Sisters, Alex Turner from Arctic Monkeys, <coughs> shit, and Elton John. Yes, you heard me correctly, Elton John. So, how did everyone's favourite rocket man make it onto the album? Here's a quote from Homie. Elton was in a car listening to Them Crooked Vultures and his assistant said, you need to hear Queens. The guy driving the car was an old roommate of mine, so all of a sudden I get a phone call at my house on a Sunday. I picked up and he said, hello Josh, this is Elton. I thought someone was messing with me. He said, the only thing missing from your band is an actual Queen. I said, 
Honey, You Have No Idea. After re-releasing their debut album in 2011, Homie said he was feeling lost and looking for something in the dark. In that dark, I found Like Clockwork. There's a part of me that's releasing this record, and I do mean releasing it and saying goodbye to it in a way that I never have before. We're trying to hang our toes over the edge here because the music is totally honest and real. That's where you can't fail. The album's name is intended to be ironic as the making of the album had been anything but. This was to be Homie's most and uncharacteristically honest album. Interestingly, it wasn't produced by Chris Goss or even Baresi, but by the band members themselves. From the amazing animated videos by Liverpudlian artist Boneface, which began to tease the album, it was clear that this was going to be a dark record. But that was just fine for the critics and fans. The album topped the Billboard 200 chart and received three Grammy nominations. Reviews consistently suggested that this was the best thing the band had produced since Songs for the Deaf. Album number 7, Villains, released in 2017. <sighs> my feelings about this album will be made quite clear in the discussion part of the podcast, so I'll try my best to remain objective. As before, there was a bit of a wait for this album, but it seems material for it had been written early on. Here's some Wikipedia tweaked background. In January 2014, Homie told Rolling Stone magazine that the band would start recording a new album when they finished their tour for Light Clockwork. In June 2014, Homie performed a solo acoustic show at James Lavelle's Meltdown Festival, featuring guest performances from Troy Van Leeuwen and Mark Lanigan. During this gig, Homie played a new song called Villains of Circumstance, which was performed again at another acoustic set in 2016. The band indicated before Rock in Rio 2015 that they were about to record a new album. Despite this, in March 2016, Michael Schumann revealed that they were on a break. During this period, the members of the band worked on various other projects. Josh Homme and Dean Fertitta contributed to Iggy Pop's 2016 album Post Pop Depression and subsequent tour. In January 2017, Troy Sanders from Mastodon said Queens of the Stone Age would release a new album later that year. Following this, the band posted several photos on social media featuring their studio. They updated their social media accounts with a new Q logo and in April 6 began what would be the most digital of marketing campaigns to date. In June, Quads announced their new album would be entitled Villains. The teaser trailer took the form of a comedy skit featuring the band performing a polygraph test with Liam Lynch, along with an appearance from the album's producer, Mark Ronson. Yes, that's right, no Chris Goss, no homie. Production was put in the hands of Mark Ronson of Amy Winehouse Valerie fame, and boy did he fucking run with it. That month, they released their first single from the album, The Way You Used To Do, and announced the world tour. The second advanced single from the album, The Evil Has Landed, was released on August 10th. The touring for the album wasn't all smooth sailing. On December 9th, 2017, while on stage during the Croc acoustic Christmas concert, Homie kicked a photographer's camera into her face, resulting in injuries for which she later received medical treatment. Homie, who was drunk at the time, later apologised through a video on the band's Instagram page saying, I hope you're okay and I'm truly sorry and I understand you have to do whatever you have to do. I just want you to know that I'm sorry. Good night, Godspeed. 
Articles were published, his apology was dissected, it was a shitty thing to do, and it broke Homie's own golden rule about not being a dick while drunk. It's not clear if she ever took the legal action that Homie was hinting at or whether she was given money, but articles about the incident quickly died down. Aside from the story, reception to the album and tours have been pretty good. It got to third place in the Billboard 200 and critics have been fairly positive. Dig a little deeper on the Quatsa Reddit and you might find a few disappointed fans, but not a lot, so it seems I must be in the minority. Well, that's it. I've taken you further than the band's biographer, and now we're up to present day. What's next for Josh Homme and Queens of the Stone Age? Billy Gibbons from ZZ Top had made noises about a new Quatsa album featuring him and Dave Grohl, but then Grohl denied it, and Gibbons turned up on the new Desert Sessions, volumes 11 and 12. Homme has always put a strong emphasis on escapism, so I wouldn't count on the next album being called Queens Under Quarantine or anything like that. Whatever it sounds like, we know one thing for sure, it will be exactly what Josh Homme wants it to sound like, and I'm happy to cheers to that. Hello there, welcome back. You have been listening to Scott Donald talking through the career of uh, Caius. Uh, is it is it Homme or Hom? Uh, yeah, this causes a lot of uh, com- controversies. It is Homme, yeah. Really? Which Why? Is, I don't know. It, I know I kind of find it upsetting as well. It really should read as... We, we, we did call him Josh Josh Holm or something like that, I think. Can we, Josh, can we just Holm. decide here that we're going to call him Josh Holm uh, and because, you know... I, I've I'm always not... known he's been Hommy and because I've always called him Hom, I cannot stop calling him Hom. Yeah. It's a double M. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, it definitely Homie's causes just controversy. Not very, it's just not very cool, is it, Hommy? Homie. <laughs> Hom does sound like some form of French cologne for them. But while, while we're doing the pronunciation guide, can I just say that I always said Kios. <laughs> okay. I had okay. no idea it was Kios until recently. Because I'd, I'd never heard anyone say it. We just talked about it on the internet, and I'd never heard anyone say it out loud until I was listening to a podcast like a few weeks back, <laughs> and they started talking about this band called Kios. And it well, only slowly dawned on me. It's like, <laughs> oh. Um, oh. If it helps. <laughs> If it helps, I'm 46 now. I was 33 when I first heard someone say the word awry out loud. And up till then, Ori. I, was pre- I was pronouncing it Ori. <laughs> well, there, there's was, another note I, that um, Quatsa was a kind of fan thing. So this abbreviation acronym, I guess. And uh, however, I have, I did, while I was doing my research, I did find some footage where uh, they were sort of asked about it and they were like, yeah, we didn't come up with it, but fine so it's allowed me to use that as a shorthand and, and feel that i wasn't sort of uh, tarnishing the the, the canon. What's that? yeah <laughs> well, okay so as i was saying um we've just been listening to scott talking talking you through the career of josh joshua homie and his various his various iterations um again joining us in the room is as you've just heard scott donald scott hello hello uh Cy sharp hello hello nick all right <laughs> and myself, uh, you and I never say my name anymore. So you and hello. Um, so we're going to start on with Caius. We're not going to spend too long on them because it's a it's a Queen of the Stone Age podcast. But it would be remiss of us if we didn't spend some time um, where he came from. So Scott, we talk. This Caius turned up in what early nineties grunge time. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. So 1991 was when the first album came out, but there'd obviously been sort of EPs and, and, and stuff like that going on beforehand uh, in the background. Um, and so this is uh, Southern California, which, um, as, as I said in my intro, that the, the, I think people, when they think California, they think, you know, LA and stuff like that. But this is very different terrain. You know, this is something more like the Southern states, really. Uh, well, you, yeah, you keep saying Southern California. Uh, I was trying to place it. Are we still talking outside LA, Bakersfield, Palm? Where are we talking? You know, when you play Grand Theft Auto and you go, <laughs> you go yeah, over the, okay. you go over the mountains and it starts to look really deserty. It's mm-hmm. that. It's that basically. And the Mojave, beside the Mojave Desert. <laughs> okay, so they came out of basically. So Bono pranced around, did the Joshua Tree, left a mark on the area. <laughs> a few years later, some guys get together at what? Some form of parties, clubs. Were yeah. they just in? What was going on? Yeah, so they were called generator parties. So that was them playing uh, from their amps using like petrol uh, generators. Um, and yeah, it wasn't. It what I mean. It sounds. It's been built up into a big sort of legend and things like that. But in reality, I think it was just you know kids trying to have fun, and they figured that you know the way to do that was to without getting their party shut down or whatever was to go out into the desert. Um, and play for some friends. So I think they were smaller affairs than the sort of legends that they've been built up into. That said, it does sound pretty cool. Fucking does, right? <laughs> I mean, it sounds pretty cool, but I, now the 46-year-old in me is going, yeah, but when I'm trying to get home, that's going to be a fucking nightmare. Where's the toilet? Is there a, can I get an Uber? Um, how old were, I'm sure you can get an Uber. <laughs> how, so how old were they? How old was Josh, Josh Homme at this, at this stage? So they were, Josh Homme, like, started really young, uh, you know, like many amazing musicians. And uh, the the band, I think they were in their tw- 20s by the time they, they really got one, like early 20s, like 2021. Um, so, you know, I'm sure these were teenager gener- generator parties. Uh, but by the time the band probably got going, yeah, Homme was mm, 21, I think. And was Caius the first name? No, it wasn't. Uh, but it, it was before that. It was uh, Katzenjammer. Wait, wait. We've got uh, we've got an expert in pronouncing things in German. Uh, Nick, this is the no part of the... How to say it. Hey, it's a weekly part of the pod. Nick, how would we say that? <laughs> how would we say it? Well, yes. <laughs> this is all because I put some effort into how I said Volker Schlindorf. <laughs> yep. But I don't, I've got no idea. Is it Katzenjammer? I don't know. That is the official way to pronounce it. Okay, so we had Catch and Yammer, Jammer, Jammer, um, and then they became, was it Sons of Caius? Yeah, based on a Dungeons and Dragons demon. <laughs> Rock and roll, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it doesn't get cooler than that. <laughs> it, it does. Okay, so um, Caius, they formed their, we're calling them Stoner Rock, is that right? Yeah, so so you got two terms. You get stoner rock and you get desert rock that sort of are floated around at this time. Neither of which the band is particularly bothered about embracing. Although I think that's a fairly typical thing. Sort of bands not really wanting to pigeonhole themselves in a particular genre. Um, but yeah, they they are classically called sort of stoner rock. I just don't know that it's what m- my friends uh, listened to uh, when they were stoned. Uh, like like rock like that is that. Was that? No, I do know it's a. I rem, there is a thing. It was it Black Mountain, 
Black Mountain, Pink Mountain Tops, they were sort of classed as stoner rock. Right. I could go um, on I've got a friend, Craig, who has been trying to get me to listen to Caius for years, who will probably be listening to this at some point. And I remember him going on, him taking me to stoner rock and doom rock gigs. Mm. And I can't remember which ones were which. Um, Cy, over, I'm going to jump straight over to you here. We're, we're moved, we've got Caius. They're a stoner rock band, early 90s, four albums, couple of VPs. Were you aware of them at this point or did you come to them later? Um, I had a friend who sort of particularly specialised in alt- sort of American alt rock. So although I was into things on, on sub pop, he was onto things on like Reptile. He was just a little bit more hardcore. He was into Caius. Uh, but I don't think I heard at the time. I think if I had heard at the time, they would have probably possibly gone over my head. Um, you know, Caius come from a slightly more slightly more metal place than Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and the big sort of, the big thing that divides people is um, is the voice of the singer <laughs> for that precise reason, because it's kind of a, for a metal world. And I guess it's important to think that, you know, although you think of the Queens as being like an alt rock band, these are really like just heavy metal nerds, aren't they really? Yeah. They, they reminded me a bit of the cult somehow. I don't quite know. I my brain would go, oh, they're a bit like the cult. And then I'd listen to them and go, no, they're nothing like the cult. But then my brain would tell me that they're reminding me of the cult, and I'm not sure how. Um, Nick, the last two pods were, was can, and you that, 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 that was your doing. <laughs> this and the next pod are my doing. So um, how has how's Caius been treating you? Well, um, it's, I mean, it's not, you know, I should start by saying it's not exactly likely to be something I'm going to love, but it's, um, but, but, you know, it's okay. I guess. But the, the, I mean, the weird thing is, I mean, if I think about how I would have felt about it at the time, say if I'd heard Wretch in 1991, I was at a kind of weird point there where I was very much rejecting heavy metal, but still very much into kind of alternative American rock and kind of punk bands. And often quite annoyed that those bands lent heavily towards metal. And so I was kind of in this kind of weird gray area. The music I was listening to was doing things that was kind of leaning towards what I didn't want them to do. Um, so, for example, while I was listening to Wretch, a band I thought of were Tad, uh, who I really liked. But you see, they were on, you know, and this is all probably just in my head, they were on the kind of safe side because they were kind of clear-cut grunge band, maybe because they had short hair and, and check I mean, shirts. You, I mean, you they, say that. They sound Tad, exactly the same. <laughs> but but Tad, were, Tad were probably, if I'm putting grunge bands in the sort of safe grunge bands and yeah. the obscure grunge bands, Tad are moving into the obscure ones. I remember them existing. I can't remember a single track by them. I don't think Tad's a terrible sort of um, reference point. We're still talking mm. about basically US rock kids who listen to too much Black Sabbath. They're both really mm-hmm. Black Sabbath influenced, aren't they? So yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just that one is attached to a cool label that Nick would have been able to get into because Mudhoney was signed to them. And in terms of like talking about obscurity, I'd never heard of Chaos. Kios, 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 Whoever these guys are, I'd never heard no, of them. I mean, I didn't really get, I didn't know Black Sabbath so well. I mean, I, I do do now, thanks to the Black Sabbath uh, immersion, but um, I didn't really make that connection early on. Um, the metal punk uh, sort of dichotomy that you're talking about is absolutely a thing. So um, John Garcia, the singer that you're talking about, that mm. was, uh, was so sort of, uh, Marmite, perhaps um, him and Josh Homme sort of maintained that they were were punk fans. You know, they kept saying, mm, "I don't know about this metal thing." You know, we 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 kind of are really our roots are in in punk, but I, I mean, obviously the aesthetic isn't. 
Um, and but but part of me because I'm I'm definitely more on the punk side. For me, it's like oh, when I hear a song like Cats and Jammer, which is on the first re- record, um, I'm like I can totally get the punk core that's there, and and a lot of the bands that they said influenced them, the Misfits and things like that. Um, you know, I, I'm definitely a huge fan of. So I, for me, they are saying no, we're actually punk at the core, and I'm like, well, that explains why you're working for me. But obviously, I get the metal sort of veneer. It's more than a veneer. It's, it's more than a veneer. <laughs> <laughs> it's a sheen. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're, we're going to sort of start moving into Queens of the Stone Age proper, but very quickly, Scott, um, why how, why did this end and Queens of the Stone Age begin? Yeah, so I think actually it was it was uh, 21, the age that Josh Homme was when, when Caius drifted apart. Um, there's various reasons given, but... Um, Josh Homme has this uh, this epiphany uh, where he's listening to Iggy Pop and he's just like, this is the shit. This is the music I want to make. And Caius doesn't sound like the music that I, I, I want to be making. And he has this sort of romantic, oh, I wasn't in love with the music and uh, I didn't want to be making music that I didn't love. So he takes a sort of sabbatical, goes to Seattle, uh, hangs around... Um, with uh, the guys, is it Dinosaur Junior? Yeah, uh, Dinosaur Junior, and was it Mark Lanigan as well? Wasn't he around at this point? Right, so Mike Johnson, uh, uh, Lanigan asked Mike Johnson to tour with the Screaming Trees, but Johnson's like, no, but I know somebody who could. So Homie kind of like gets into like rhythm guitar, just you know, the pressure's off Homie. He can just do the rhythm stuff, smoke loads of pot, whatever, and then. You know, through that, he 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 sort of finds his groove and, and starts to to come up with the Queens of the Stone Age records. And there's this switch at first. Caius and Queens of the Stone Age do this really great, in my opinion, split album because it's sort of teasing what's going to happen. And uh, you know, John Garcia goes to backing vocals for the Queens of the Stone Age stuff, and uh, Josh Homme takes a takes a lead. And uh, to 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 their credit, I think. Okay, and so we're going to move straight into the eponymously titled Queens of the Stone Age, Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and this was the first of Josh Homme's, uh, what is it, Heavy Rock for Boys, um, Sweet for Girls, which for somebody who professes to be a feminist already comes across as pretty sexist <laughs> straight at the start. Um, but my first, okay, my first take when I was listening to this, and I listened to this for the first time as we were really sort of preparing for this, was it has both it seems to be both menacing and yet with a sort of tongue-in-cheek smile if that makes sense like like a Foo Fighters video would have Dave Grohl not taking himself too seriously um most Josh Homme and the band don't seem to be taking themselves too seriously I'm not saying they're messing around but there is sort of a smile and a menace that goes with this. Um, Nick, I'm yeah. going straight. I'm going straight to you before we get some more. Go go, go back through the the Scots and the size. Um, the first Queens of the Stone Age. We've got Josh Homme. We're moving away from the pure Sabbath. How did how did you find this when you listened to it? <laughs> it's going to be a fairly consistent answer to all these. It's okay, <laughs> but the, I mean, um, I don't know. I, I was actually kind of excited when I first listened to these albums through because I thought that I would find something to really love in them. And so mostly my reaction the first time I did it was slight disappointment because I thought that 
I thought they were going to click. I really did. And coming around again, um, I kind of enjoyed it a little bit more. But these earlier albums, not so much. Not It's, it's just okay. I don't know. I mean, I, the, the track, I really like Spiders and Vinegaroons, that track on it, is because um, it's sort of weird psychedelic space stomp thing. Um, and so, you know, there's always some interesting things going on. There's lots to kind of, you know, find on their albums. But on okay. the whole, go on, go on. I've got, ba- got some bad news <laughs> for you, Nick. It what? wasn't on the original release. Oh, well, the album, <laughs> well, in that case, it makes it much easier for me. The album's shit. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, it was on that split album, but then they tacked it on to the, the uh, later release. But I totally agree. It's a fucking mental track. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to jump in and say that's actually something I've noticed quite a lot recently, whether or not it's because of streaming through Spotify's in different territories or whether or not it's downloading or buying them in different countries. Um, because we have various different people in various different time zones making this part, I'm already finding that I'm listening to a version of an album that wasn't the version of the album that originally came out, and then trying to work out which version of the album was the one that was supposed to be listened to and which has this live track yeah. and which one, which one doesn't. Um, there's usually the core ones anyway. So this is, this is 98, which... Um, for me, it was a period where American music was starting to wake up a bit after being asleep for a couple of years, uh, sort of post-grunge. There wasn't much. You could pl- you could find a couple of our artists here and there, but there wasn't much going on. And so, 98, we've got Queens of the Stone Age, uh, self-titled album, um, Sigh. So we're moving, we're moving away from, like I said, we're moving away from the sort of the pure Sabbath and into something else. Do you think they're... How do, you, how do you think the first album represents them? Um, I think uh, what marks it apart from the ones that follow, um, and also obviously what was before, is it's very much Homie doing his thing. Um, it's, you know, the songs, you know, there's not a lot of variety in terms of the sound, particularly. They're all the same sort of really groove-led sort of sound that you can associate with Stone Rock. Um, and then every so often there's just these incredible riffs in there. But for me, yeah, it stands apart because it just... Like I say, for a band that I, you know, I consider Homie a really collaborative uh, artist. So this to me just sounds like he's not collaborating. Sounds like it's him just absolutely just getting this out of his system. Okay. Okay. So it's just, he, he, there's something he wanted to do and he's just doing it. Yeah. That, yeah. That's, I mean, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, Scott might, um, you know, Scott might know more about the creative process, but that's how it sounds to me. Um, it, it, it sounds like he's putting the strings totally, which, which is why there's that kind of consistency of sound. I mean, some people absolutely, you know, somebody, this is their favourite Queen's album. It doesn't quite do it for me. There's just not, not there's not quite enough that the highlights are incredible, like um, If Only and that the riff on the, the start of How to Handle a Rope is one of the you know, greatest starts of, of any Queen song. Um, but um, I, always, I always think I like it a lot more than I actually do when I listen to it. Yeah, I mean, they do sound fully formed as a band. Like, they turn up and you go, oh, Queens of the Stone Age are Queens of the Stone Age. Um, and they are very tight. And I've got a note, I've got a note, which basically, I'm trying to read it. I wrote it down earlier on. And it's something like, much like Guy from Spoon, minimalist perfection stripped down. <laughs> which actually, no, I mean, if you think about, say, Brit from Spoon, which, which we are going to cover in the next pod, because uh, I'm seamless with my segues. And we're looking at Josh Homme here. In the early albums, at least, there is there seems to be a, okay, we're doing a three-minute song. We're stripping it down to what needs to be in there. Everything that's in there is in there for a reason. We're not going overboard. We're not going to town. 
and it's going to work. Um, I've also written down in my notes, Scott, and you can please enlighten me with this, fight with terror vision. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's a thing. I think that 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 came later, but but uh, this I didn't know them. Did you know these guys? Terror Vision. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were they were yeah. they were indie dance floor staple. Okay, Scott, you're talking to to three to three men in their forties. Yeah, hold on, hold on. Um, I was ten, I, I was ten when the Queens of the Stone Age title te- album came. Scott Tequila, <laughs> the song Tequila. You'll have heard Tequila. Oh, is that them? Oh, that okay. was Terror Vision. Now, I think in 1999, so a year after this album came out, there was some fracas That's right. with uh, television for which, was it Oliveri got yes. arrested for one of the many times? Yes. Yes, yeah, that's right. It sounds like a dressing room kerfuffle. Um, uh, yeah, one of one of the long list of kerfuffles and various other things uh, that Oliveri was, was implicated for. Um, yeah, the... the I, I think I think uh, Oliveri comes in at the end of the album, the album on a, on an answering machine, um, and he he basically as soon as this album's kind of released, I think he begins touring with them. So he's kind of de facto Queens of the Stone Age member, but actually he didn't he wasn't involved in the recording pro- process. As I said, it, it, or, or or guessed, it is absolutely Pommy at the helm here. If you read the the notes, he's kind of doing most stuff on most tracks, but he's he's starting to form that desert gang, and various people who sort of reappear on later albums are are there, but really he is at the helm. It's interesting that Sai said that for some people it's still their favorite album. So I I discovered songs for the deaf, worked my way backwards to rated R, and then I went into a bar and my my local and I said something to the manager about loving Queens of the Stone Age. And he was like, oh, yeah, my favourite album's the first one. And I, I was like, oh, yeah, Rated R. And he said, no, 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 no. There was, a, there was one before that. And I was like, no, I, I know this band really well. And it was it was still at the time that, uh, you know, that you struggled to find albums. So it was years before I found the, the original self-titled album. Um, and like you guys are suggesting, it took a while for me to warm to it. But I, I do love it now. I think Regular John, I think the openers... I always have something special for me, and aside from the ones that we've mentioned so far, I think they're always yeah. very deliberately placed as openers. I mean, yes. I, guess any, I guess any album is deliberately placed, isn't it? But um, yeah, it, it's it sets the tone for the album, and even on the albums I don't like, the first song sets the tone. Yeah, he well. mentioned something later. I think it's I. It remind either he mentions it in relation to Jaws, or it reminded me of Jaws, where it's like. Uh, Spielberg said, "There's only one moment you get to shock the audience, and you know, there's that shark." moment and, and he had another scare after that which never quite worked and I think Palmy operates from that similar thing where it's like there's one kind of oomph moment near the start of the album to wake you up and he knows he's only going to get one shot at that um, was, I think it was maybe it was Six Music about maybe 10 years ago they, they did a big thing about uh, the second song on the second side being one of the most important songs on an album back when it was a two-sided album because that's the one you've gone into side two and you need a reason to push through sometimes to sort of get to the end. And I can think of quite a lot of albums where, particularly back in the 90s, where there was a big song later on to bring you back into it. But I think this, the, the sequencing on some of these Queens of the Stone Age albums, they are very front-heavy uh, at, at, at times. Um, okay. Um, if anyone else got anything, 
<laughs> what I was going to say is it's just funny because generally I think the ones I've sort of like where I've made notes tend to be the kind of late tracks but I think that's when it's the uh, extended versions where they've stuck the weird shit on the end and that's, what, and that's when my ears prick up I'm like oh this is interesting <laughs> we have established that you do like a 12 inch B-side mix indie dance floor mix of, of whatever we're listening to so hopefully now there, there, there is always that sort of hmm? yep there's one of them later on no go on as you were as you were <laughs> No, okay, there's, so. there's some, some great remixes on YouTube, actually. There's some dance stuff and whatever. That, that was really good. I, I recommend. Okay, so we're going to move on from the album that you didn't know existed when you were trying to profess that you loved the band. And I've had that moment as well when somebody totally schools you <laughs> in the band that you think you know about. But that's also great, um, isn't it? Suddenly finding out there's a classic era album you didn't know about by a band you love. It's like, that's better than a new release because you, you kind of have more confidence it's going to be great. Which was, I mean, that was, that was, that was sort of normal when we were younger, but I just presume yeah. that nowadays no one has that experience because you've got the entirety of human knowledge at your fingertips. But yeah, you could go for ages without knowing. Um, I, mean, I, I had albums that I had recorded that I, I went for ages not even knowing they recorded the wrong speed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, need, I also, I mean, if you think about it, back in the day, the amount of EPs or singles that were non-album singles that bands would churn out that you'd know there was a song by this band and you'd have all the albums and you're like, well, where is Who Wants to Be the Disco King by The Wonder Stuff as an example? Which album is that on? And like, you have to find that it's some 12 inch that your mate has a copy of and then you can base, that's the, that, that was the internet, Scott. The internet, <laughs> Spotify back in the day <laughs> was pressing record on the tape. Um, so we're going to move on. We're going we're gonna to move on from the end of the last century and go into probably Queens of the Stone Age proper when they start to become a driving force with rated R. Uh, blue cover, um, it's great. I mean, for a while I thought this may have been my favourite one. It isn't, but for a while I thought it was. Um, they've got a template now. I mean, the Lost Art of Keeping uh, a Secret sets out this template that comes back in no one knows, this sort of chunk, 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 melodic sort of thing kicking in there. Um, you've got Feel Good Hit of the Summer, which is, I'm not going to start singing it, but basically... A, Go yeah, on. A, <laughs> no, but I was reading a very good point about how, say, like Ramones have their anthem that people go, oh, sing a Ramones song, and then there's that one. And Nirvana have that one. And this is the Queens of the Stone Age's anthem. I'm not sure it needed to come back half again halfway through mm. the album. They seemed that they were a bit proud of it. Um, but as an album, this was brilliant. I really enjoyed it. It was tight as fuck. Um, they, the sound wasn't too big. It was still stripped down, and they seemed to be knowing where they're going. Um, Scott, this was your second album going backwards from uh, Songs for the Deaf, like most people did, I think. Um, where does this sit for you? Yeah, I, I fucking love it as well. I, th I think it's it's great. Um, yeah, the standout ones, I mean, obviously, as you've said, the, the first two, I mean, uh, feel, feel Good Hit of the Summer. I, d I don't know that I immediately loved the song. I, I, I felt that, that perhaps it was too on, on the nose slightly, but, I mean, the UK went wild for it. Like, I think, like, it was very popular, maybe more so the, than in the US. Um, and... And yeah, I, I think for me, it's one of those albums where there's a few, um, a few sort of 
the the, the sort of understated ones I, I really enjoy. Uh, Better Living Through Chemistry. I don't know if you, any of you enjoyed that, but for me, I think that's a superb track. My favourite on the album, I'd say. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, just those bongos the and everything. The bongos are great, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, so, so good. Not a sentence you heard enough on this podcast. <laughs> the bongos were great. <laughs> well, that yeah. was one thing I think I found with, with a lot of them is, is when, I, when I like something in Queens of the Stone Age, there's something interesting happening in the percussion. Like they brought in some steel drums or something, just some random shit. And I'm like, oh, that's nice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, it sounds like, oh, Matthew McConaughey's playing bongos in the desert. <laughs> that's exactly. That's a nice yeah. addition. I mean, that, that's not far off some of the guests that they ended up getting on. It, it, so, it feels yeah. plausible to me. Yeah, totally, totally. Or other things like Autopilot, I think, is fantastic, or Monsters in the Parasol. I think they're, they're, they're good tracks as well. Uh, Monsters in the Parasol is obviously that sort of robot rock. So we've had sort of desert rock, stoner rock, and then there's this other um, genre sort of being played with here, which sometimes is called robot rock. So this sort of staccato, da, 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 da. Um, yeah. I was about to ask you what robot rock was, uh, yeah. or accuse you of just making it up. Sai, <laughs> are you a big fan of robot rock? <laughs> I, that's not what I was. I, I would presume robot rock was more sort of techno-y stuff, but uh, I've never heard of it as a genre. Well, think, think, yeah. of, think of like a staccato robot. You're like, meh, 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 meh. Uh, yeah, no, I, it's it's got the same it's got the same visual logic as, as math rock does. I get that. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I I do have a comment about math rock later on. Um, so we, we we're going to mention all the subgenres. So we pretend we know what we're talking about. Um, so Scott came into Queens of the Stone Age with the last album was Working Back. Um, I was also Songs for the Deaf. I think uh, was the first time. I noticed them. Um, Sai, where were you aware of them by this point? So Red Eye was a big album for me. So um, it comes, to, it came to me at a period where I was really just listening to dance music. I kind of, I'd, I'd, I'd stopped listening to guitar music during Britpop for, because of Britpop, um, and I hadn't been tempted back. And then uh, a friend of mine um, gave me two CDs. One was this. One was a uh, Relationship of Command by at the, at the Drive-In, which was like the other big, the other big alt rock kind of album that time and red star single-handedly just got me back into guitar music um it's yeah i i think it's a masterpiece it's my favorite of their albums it's you know the opener is obviously just incredible it's what i like about it is it's, it's an unashamed pop album in the same way that nevermind is an unashamed pop album production's really pop um it, it's full of hooks it's not particularly heavy really i mean obviously it's got if we're going to hit the summer, but compared to some of the death, for instance, it's 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 got a pretty light touch. Um, uh, it's got that just the collaborate. It's got it's got variety, but it doesn't sound like it's having indulgent exercises like some some albums. Like yeah, they'll throw in like a punk song here and there, but it'll sound like an indulgent exercise, or it'll sound like they've uh oh they've let the drummer write the song, or wherever it might be. Um, whereas this is collaborative, so it sounds it's almost like a mixtape. But yet the quality is absolutely bang on throughout. Whether you've got sort of Lanigan doing his thing on um, on in the fade, which is probably my favourite Lanigan vocal there is. Um, where you've got the homie just pure pop of Lost Art keeping a secret. Then you've got um, you've got things like Autopilot. Autopilot doesn't sound like anything else in the discography. Um, but yeah, I, I I think it's great. As like I say, it got me completely back into um, guitars. And what year was rated? What year was rated R? Uh, this is two thousand. 
Okay, yeah. So because around about because I was thinking around about that time, you also had things like White Stripes were moving into their second album. There they did seem to be a resurgence in America of oh, we can pick up a guitar again. Uh, I think the difference between that though and Queens is, is um, Queens kind of hop back to a vibe that I was into when I was younger of bands just looking like they wanted to be in a band of, and, and rock out. Whereas the White Stripes and stri- you know the Strokes and that sort of there's there's a very knowing irony at play with those bands. Whereas these guys are just a, a rock band. Um, so I, for me, there's a real that's difference, and that's almost the metal side of it because indie rock bands are sort of partial to fashion. They kind of come in and out of what's what's the big new thing. Whereas metal and rock bands, they just want to rock. And there's a sort of an honesty and a non-pretentiousness to it, which I think you get in Queens, you don't really get in their contemporaries. Um, I'm going to come back to that exact point when I also visit my note later on, which says pure Ronson. So we'll, we'll come, we'll, 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 we'll readdress uh, whether Queens of the States stay doing what they were doing so well. Uh, as we move forward, I'm already seeing Scott's face as we have to get to the more poppy side. But I totally agree with you. This is a it's a pop album, hooks and catchy tunes, and it, it, it turns up, it goes here we are, and then it sort of moves on. Um, moving on to, I mean, this was a stripped down but very well sequenced, very well produced, very tight pop album, and then like most bands they seem to get bigger and bigger in terms of sound and collaborations and, and whatever they're doing. You can go back to most rock or indie rock bands and they've got a relatively simple first album and then they get the gospel choir in, or then they get like the, the, the five extra musicians in and moving into songs for the deaf. Uh, we've got more Lanigan. Uh, Dave Grohl turns up on drums. You've got the video with the deer. They're hunting the deer and then the deer punches them in the, that was how I first heard of them. I was like, who's that tall ginger guy with a deer? Um, it's a great album. It's not as tight as R. And I also don't think it's as interesting as what follows later, but it does have um, No One Knows. No One mm-hmm. Knows? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Which was probably their breakthrough, proper breakthrough song in Europe, it's I would I, say. It's where I first heard them, for sure. Yeah. yeah. As, and Scott, this was your this was your entrance point. How old were you? Being slightly uh, patronising here. No, no, go for it. So, well, that was uh, two thousand two when that was released. Uh, don't, tell, don't tell me. I'll be 14, 14, 14. Oh, God, uh, I, wish, I wish I'd been fourteen when that album came out. Well, it didn't, it's so interesting. Sorry, si, sorry, si, you were fourteen when senseless things came out. So think about what you had. <laughs> so, I mean, I've only really discovered that. The, like the alt rock peak when I was when I was a teenager was uh, I didn't know that music moved in fashions and trends so so I was just heartbroken you know sort of six years <laughs> later when the you know the kids that I teach were 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 listening to stuff that wasn't alt rock you know like when I, I started teaching in 2010 and and kids that I I taught were still listening to like bands that I liked and then it was it was noticeable how that shift moved away so I'm still trying to deal with the the, the horror of um of not everybody being into alt rock <laughs> yeah so Scott you wait about 18 years and it'll all come back um I'm currently teaching uh 13 14 year olds who are wearing blue denim flares uh long white 
hoodies, under short sleeve t-shirts, Nirvana t-shirt. I mean, it really looks like 1991. I mean, you've got to wait a while, but at some point you'll have your moment. And if you don't change, you'll be cool for exactly six months when they suddenly realize you were slightly ahead of their fashion. The rest of the time you're an embarrassing, embarrassing old twat. Um, so we're in the middle of songs for the deaf. This is where I came into them. This is where you came into them, Scott. Um, Nick, any, any, any more love for them at this point? Um, I, I, I liked the single. I mean, I remember at the time thinking, well, this is interesting, but it didn't excite me enough to investigate further. I was happy for it to just be there. But that, that was a little bit why I was sort of thinking the albums would excite me more when I first got around to listening to them all, because I knew that that was an interesting song, especially at the time. I think it was one of those songs when it came out, it sort of, it felt a bit different. And it felt, even though it was that slightly arched back to basics rock, there was something about it that was appealing. Yeah, it's, there was rock cliche after rock cliche, but it does seem to. Yeah, does seem to but I think I think at the time there was something quite exciting about that kind of like this is you know this is straight down the line rock cliche and we don't give a fuck and I was like okay, I can get on board with that, but tell um, that I didn't really. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, how, how did this follow on for you nicely? I mean, Radar brought you back into guitar-based music. Um, did this one keep the love alive or? So yeah, I mean, at this point, I yeah, I was kind of my taste my taste changed. I was yeah, I was back into guitars full stop. So, but it was um, yeah, this was this is the classic one of this is the eagerly wasted album that comes out after you've already got into something. You know, you know, you have those kind of when you get into band, yeah, you know, there's the one you go backwards to, and the one is the one that comes out, and it either goes like that or it yeah, or it's the start of the end for you. But um, um, I mean, I love this album, but to me, it's a different band. You know, Rated R is obviously it's um, homie's kind of um. Yeah, that's his, his baby, but it's more like he's sort of directing the choir a little bit um, and getting people and putting. You know, he's almost like an, he's, an edit, he's an editor as much as he is a, a creator on it. Whereas this, it's like a it, it's it's an it's a band, supergroup basically. It's a screaming tree, a Nirvana, a dwarf, and a um, and a, 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 as in the band dwarves. I don't mean like one of them's literally small. <laughs> oh, I thought we were on Lord of the Rings again. Huh? <laughs> um, and. Um, and you can tell that's their vision for it. Because when you get the album, it just has these sort of four sort of like arty pictures of the four members. And so they are, they're a gang. And that's kind of the deal. And it sounds completely different. It's, you know, it, it, when it came out, it just, the sound of it is what blew me away. You know, the, the, the drums are just incredible. And I know it's kind of, you kind of cheat bound to say that because it's Grohl, but it is, it's a drumming album. You know, it's the drums that drive the whole thing. Um, yeah, so yeah, I've got criticisms of, criticisms of it, but um, yeah, but either way, when it blew, when it came out, it blew me away. No, totally. Um, so, I mean, would you say that it was an attempt at a supergroup a little bit? I, yeah, I, I think yeah. even at the time, that was sort of something I was aware of about them that they were a kind of supergroup. I think really... I think of the lineups, this was the one that was was most regarded as the kind of super supergroup for sure. Yeah. Did they ever have the same lineup? For more than one album, as no. Queens. No, they, they barely had the same lineup for like half an album. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's interesting that you remember those four. Uh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Those, but they're quite—they're like buttons, are they not? Sadly, like, yeah, they're they're, 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 they're photos, but they're kind of like they're sort of two-toned, sort of glossy yeah. and, and matte. 
But yeah, it's they're building a mythology around these four guys. See, all I remember is the sperm and the egg. That's that's emblazoned in my mind. That that was the, the is that, is that something to do with the album or just a, <laughs> a personal experience? It's just uh, yeah, yeah. No, the so the cue from the Queens of the Stone Age is, is formed of a, a sperm and an egg uh, joining. I don't even think that was. I think that kind of it. It was a re, as as Sai said, it was a, a sort of glossy album cover, and some of them were bl- black with red lettering and then others were vice versa but you could kind of fold it out and whatever and and, and there was another sort of um oh I, I learned a new word when i did research for this bident oh what's that any, mean any any guesses what a bident is what a bident so like a, a joe bident double fold <laughs> it's is a, it like a double double no, fold it's a trident but with only two forks Oh, uh, kills the cover. Ah, so that was another so symbol. A prong. So you, 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 yeah. well, you seem disappointed by that, but but yeah. yeah. <laughs> is a quadrant a thing, or is that just a fork? Sure, yeah. <laughs> um, I'm just picturing a prong now, not the band prong. That that could be a different segue. Um, all right. I mean, I, I did mention how um, bands tend to get to that point where they go from their stripped down album and they get bigger and they get the gospel choir, and they get the extra stuff thing. This was that album that they started to get bigger and become sort of break out of the confines of their original sound. Um, we talked a little bit, or Sai talked a little bit, how previous albums, they're all Homie. You can tell this is Homie. What other influences do you think came to play with this? Was it just, I mean, we talked about the drums, but was Dave bringing his own drumming, or was he drumming as Joshy? as Joshy, as Homie <laughs> wanted. So there's a really good behind the scenes video of my absolute fucking favorite song from the album, which is A Song for the Dead, not Songs for the Deaf, but A Song for the Dead. It's track, it must be about track six, something like that. And it's my favorite. One, one, one with a ridiculous intro. Exactly, yeah, exactly. So so, so, so Dave Grohl is drumming and Josh Homie is sort of telling them in this really like <laughs> untechnical language, you know, like, so Dave Grohl's like, like, and he's like, no, 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 don't do a fucked up one. Do like a, a splashy one and then go into a fucked up one or whatever. So so actually you really get a lovely insight in that little video clip that that Grohl is absolutely bringing it like the I believe the God he is, but it's still homie at the helm. It's mm-hmm. absolutely still him. Um, he's the one that asks for more dread. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's totally, totally the one asking for more dread. Um, okay, I think this is probably a good time to move on to to lullabies, um, which had, which was the next one and had, I believe you can correct me in a minute if you're if, if I'm wrong, a fairly mixed response as as a follow up. I'm um, I'm gonna play, put my cards on the table. This was my favorite one. Oh, um, okay. absolutely. This is my favorite one. Um, it's I'm gonna be slightly pretentious. Um, and after telling somebody to put their phone on mute, whoever it is, um, I'm going to say the words <laughs> Dickensian menace. There's this sort of playful, was it track three? It almost sounds like a Jack the Ripper-esque soundtrack. Soundtrack? Soundtrack. Um, it does occasionally sound like it could be on the Peaky Blinders soundtrack, but that's more of a sort of uh, thing about the atmosphere to it. But it, it is atmospheric. It has some amazing tracks. Uh, it bounds along in this sort of playful, dark, um, almost like a story concept. Um, and for me, it was a lot more interesting than just a, a rock album. Uh, the one it... before was a rock album. And this one was, ah, oh, this, is, this is going somewhere. 
Is it Everybody Knows That You're Insane? Was that the track that you felt that was... Mm, go on, go on. Um, Nick's going to say something while I seamlessly look at the track. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go, or it'll be Burn the Witch. It just, it just felt like a really good point to lean in and say, I didn't like it. <laughs> yeah, go, go. Uh, Go on, Everybody knows that you're yeah. in... Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's my notes, my notes. And I made notes. They say, more of the same. <laughs> well, you're not in good company there because I, I, I think that the, the, the people felt that it was... I think what you're describing, so the Songs of the Deaf was the anticipated, having shown that they knew what they were doing in Rated R, the anticipated album, and then it's whatever the cliche is, the difficult sort of second album yeah. in terms of after the breakthrough so so yeah i think people felt that it was it was lacking um there's a but big... that that i find odd because you've got you've got burn the witch in my head and little sister as three tracks in a row and they are fucking great rock tracks they sound like great queens of the stone age tracks for somebody who's not a massive for me for who's not a massive queens of the stone age fan they sound like and they're a great one two three punch right in the middle of the album and I, I just think they're ace and they're broody, they're menacing, they're playful. It's really, really, really cool. Um, I was, for people listening at home, I was just about to say the words, the captain, because Sai has the captain as his Zoom uh, name. So if I, if I slip up at some point, that's why. So um, Captain Sai, um, how are you with the, the concept of this album? It's definitely going down a different path. Um, I, I, I'm... I didn't expect um, Songs of Death sort of part two because the whole YouTube Songs of Death it's it's a, it's a fashion of pad. It's a moment. It's 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 a it's a moment of of chemistry captured on an album. A, you know, an album that goes on a bit too long, for liking, but an album you know that's pretty much nails that sound. So I wouldn't have wanted the second one. Do I think Lullaby's Paralysis is a very good album? Not really, no. Um, but um, you know, I think I can qualify that. But it's um, to me. It's, I wouldn't say he's lost his way, but he's trying to find something new in the Queens. And, um, and he tries lots of different things. So you come in with that, that sort of that intro where Lannigan, I don't like Lannigan vocal on the intro. And the problem oh, with that, you don't like the Lannigan no, vocal? No, I don't. It's, it's, the song's just too slow, it just doesn't do anything. And I know people love that vocal. I do. And then, and if you could. If you're going to do that, then you need to come up with something massive on the second on the second song. And the problem with medication and a, a few of the ones on here is the songs are quite well written, but the production is is nothing like the production on songs of death. The drums are far too low in the mix, and it just loses all that power. And the weaker songs on these ones are the ones where they try and revisit that sound, like Little Sister, um, and kind of don't capture it. But they try other things elsewhere, and, and some of it works. So going, I mean, going on that point about the drums being down in the mix. I mean, this is the one where Oliveri's gone, right? So that's a real elephant in the room. And so uh, yeah. Oliveri's gone. Grohl's not. Grohl's not there. No, I mean, but, but I mean, Grohl was so successful with the Foo Fighters at the time. I mean, the Foo Fighters were actually concerned that he was just going to go off. There's some interviews with him at the time, but no, I don't think that was really anything that was ever going to be considered. Um, no, but so, as in, what hmm. I meant to say was like in the previous album, you had several. Not as necessarily egos, but but musical planets with their own gravity bringing something to this. And with Oliveri gone, and Grohl going back to the Foo Fighters, it's very much a Hami record again. But it's a Hami record after he's got a taste of a bigger sound. But now he's got to sort of 
do it on his own a little bit, I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. Perhaps. I mean, I, I think, I think what Sai was saying about the the mix. I mean, I, I don't think anybody's ever been in Queens of the Stone Age that, that wasn't a fucking amazing musician. But I think that that as as Sai said about the, the 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 drums could have been more prominent, for example, on the album. Um, yeah, I I I think the the sort of Oliveri stuff bores me a little bit. That that you know, like there's this oh they've you know fuck you you you, you chucked him out and there's there's all this boring sort of story about how he how he had to let him go and stuff like that that I think is just drama. Uh, I don't think he's missed on bass. I, I I think if anything, again, it's the mix of the bass that that could be could be better rather than the the playing itself. Um, but yeah, I I think I I you and I I love this album. I think uh, again, it's the understated ones. I think uh, I <laughs> the 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 most perfect sort of euphemistic title. I never came, <laughs> which is uh, it, it's great because it scans one way totally fine, and then it scans well, the way they I, probably half intended as well. I never came is, is to me the highlight of the album. Yeah, and, I agree. You know, and I and I know I I was down on the album, but but yeah, where the album really triumphs is, is as a vocalist. Homie, is this this is where it really puts that falsetto sort of front front stage, and. He sort of commits to playing sort of slower songs, which for someone who likes to rock out is a kind of moment of exposure, isn't it? You kind of make yourself vulnerable by doing that a bit. Um, so, yeah, amongst the experiments he tries, that to me is the one that he nails down. And luckily, he, you know, it becomes something that comes back again and again on each album. Um, but, you know, but it is still too long. Though. It's too, does anyone not think this album's too long? I think I think most of the stuff they're doing at this point and continuing carries on. Everything's a little it outstays its welcome a little bit. I think. I mean, so. I, yeah. I mean, after this, I've I've bracketed the next three albums under a comment saying the long descent into art rock. So that's where they start getting looking, good. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, looking at the idea that you said, Sai, about how uh, Homie's trying to find the new Queens of the Stone Age sound doesn't want to sort of stay still, wants to keep moving forward. Um, and this is something that he seems to do moving up into, what was, I've written Era V because I didn't write proper notes. Scott? Era Vulgaris. Thank you. Which I also then followed with Jim will paint it album cover because it has one of the worst album covers I have ever oh, seen no. in my like fucking it. life. It's all right. It's, you're you're a designer, Nick. This yes, this, this it's um, no, it's it's but, very much of its time. That that just even just that shade of pink is so two thousand and seven. What, what number pink? Also, is, what, it's, what it's number a, color is it? It's a very it's a very punk rock cover though. It's um, yeah, you know, there's no yeah, there, there's no doubt about what they're going to be trying to sound like. Hmm. But they but they don't. That's the problem. They there's a they try a couple of different sounds on the album. There's some sort of bigger beats come in stylistically they move around a bit but then there's some sort of plodding rock in the, there the the internet that thing you mentioned before had had got really popular i believe by by that point and the world wide web that's as as it's known and while we were all surfing uh, it was a real promotional thing for that album cover so the, you had these two characters Bulby and I can't remember the name of the other one, but basically they, these were sort of teasing the albums. You know, this kind of where you now go on a band's website and there's little tasters of the songs yeah, yeah. and imagery and stuff. So it was it was the, the, the kind of real first attempt or somebody's first attempt at kind of marketing and, and things like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, Sorry. I, 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 an, al an album having a brand, basically. I, 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 
I, I kind of like but, the but idea of also... somebody's Sorry. first attempt at marketing. <laughs> well, well, definitely. I, I mean, but, but Palmy is so. Oh so my funny. god! Is this is this is this the equivalent of like when you find a hotel website that hasn't been updated in like eight years? And you're like, Jesus Christ! Look at the JavaScript and the Flash on that. That's terrible. So, so, so you decide how telling this is. But it, before, while while Homie's in Seattle, before he forms Queen of the Stone Age, he's about to study business at Washington Uni, and I thought, hmm. I'm not shocked by that because no, I think he, I think he, I don't, I don't mean it. I fucking love them. I'm not suggesting at all that they're, they're conceited in any way, but just that, that I don't think he's stupid. I think he's thinking about these things. And by the time it comes to Erebo Garris, the internet's kicking around. Uh, and, you know, he started, he, I don't, I can't remember the artist, but he's obviously thinking that, that, you know, there's a way to sort of tease and, and get people into albums. I mean, even saying that, though, Erev, this album was, what year was this? 2007, I think. Seven, seven. I mean, we talked in the previous part about how even at the end of the 90s, Bowie had already had a downloadable, like use the internet for downloadable tracks and marketing and stuff. So it's not like it, it had just turned up at, at, at this point. No, I, um, think, I think Homie's very brand aware. I mean, even him himself, he's a brand, isn't he? He's this kind of, he's this kind of like um, sort of silent, protected big brother archetype who will kind of beat you up for being horrible to a girl. He kind of, he, he, he's like, yeah, he's like, he's kind of sort of proto, kind of half-fug, half-feminist. You know, sure. You kind, you, kind of, you kind of, you know, you know he's got your back in the fight. He's, like I say, he's, well, he's got a very distinct brand. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's got a gay brother, and it was definitely that kind of thing, you know, like I'm the sort of macho guy that's going to beat the shit out of... Exactly. You know, he's, he's, bully, he's your bully's worst yeah. nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. However, saying that, now you said he he could have studied business at uni. <laughs> um, I have met people that look basically. If you imagine him in a in a shirt and tie, I've met people in marketing back in my previous career that pretty much look like Homie turning up in a, uh, for a presentation. And so I can imagine him sort of doing that, but then probably kicking the shit out of me later for saying something wrong. Oh, I like it a bit more now. Yeah, I know, I know. That's what I'm thinking. You know, like he he does. Honestly, like I find, I find it hard watching some of the live stuff at times when, when you know, he he can get slightly antagonistic with the crowd. But in t- and on the other hand, I'm like, how the fuck would any of my friends and I deal with somebody throwing like cups of piss over us? You know, like it, you know, fucking bands shouldn't have to put up with this shit. Oh, I'd, and, I'd have struck so, off. Right, so exactly. So who, you know, why why shouldn't he get fucking annoyed when people are throwing shit and stuff like that? That's fucking disrespectful. But he is, but he is essentially the politically correct principal from South Park, though, isn't he? Oh yeah, he is. He is principal. He is PC principal, principal Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, yeah, PC principal. PC oh, principal. PC principal is amazing. <laughs> um, I've got a couple of other notes. I, I do not consent to this opinion. <laughs> well, no, well, no, nor do I. If he's listening. <laughs> um, if he's listening, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a total twat. Says me, Nick. Nick Hilditch. <laughs> <laughs> He doesn't know. We all sound the same. Um, okay, I've got a couple That's of more true. notes. I mean, we've got like I'm designer. Yes. I keep Actually, I like that. I'm. I keep. Is that because Wrong. you are a designer? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Wrong. I, that, I. I. I think that's an absolute turd of a track. I really? really? Oh. Yeah. You see, but this is where I, I start that. liking him. <laughs> right. See, I, see, I know. I know. My name's here. It's for that say uh, It's an album track, but again, on I'm designer. Much like everything on Era Vulgaris, it's the production that elevates it. The songwriting is kind of, you know, aside from like Make It With You, which is, is where they kind of, where Hobby 
sort of first tries on this kind of sexy vibe, which I think weirdly works really well. Uh, but I'm Design is another one that just, you know, without the production, it probably wouldn't be much, but the production really elevates it. As it does low songs on here. No, yeah, I, mean, well, I was going to mention... To me, that, sound, that one sounds a bit more like Battles. That was the first yeah, time I heard they sound like a bit a, math rock come in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I even wrote, yeah. I notes I started name-checking bands that you wouldn't at all expect to associate with... Uh, with Queens of the Stone Age. Next well, to I'm designer, that, that Brister, isn't he? Point, Franz right, Ferdinand so. next to I'm Designer. But not, not just that, when I was listening to it, the bit where I kind of perked up, I thought, oh, this sounds interesting, was definitely one that was probably tagged on later because it was a hot chip remix of uh, I'm Designer on the Spotify version of it. Love it. It's great. Not so much, like, uh, but I, I just, you know, as I think we'll discuss uh, at the end, there's, there's, there's a delicate balance here, and I feel that this went, that track went too much... There wasn't, yeah, enough guitar for. Well, this is the weird thing, right? When when you're kind of like immersing in a band that you're not that into, and then you start finding that you like the the albums that the people who love the band don't like. And I'm not saying I love these albums. This is the things you're thinking, right? They're neither really loved by the fans, and then people who don't particularly enjoy the band is like, okay, this is all right. I could listen um, to this. At this point, um, if you're listening to this, it's worth going back to the Butthole Surface episode where Nick accused Always. me of only liking the Butthole Surface albums that no, but, that don't sound like the Butthole Surface. Well, yeah, no, but that's fair enough. That's what I mean, right? I, I probably only like the Queens of the Stone Age albums that don't sound like Queens of the Stone Age. I'm okay with that. I definitely think that's a thing. And, and, and you'd said earlier about the idea of liking later tracks. I don't know what you felt about this album, but for me, this is probably their most front-loaded album. I I don't like suture up your your future and stuff like that. They're fine, but I just don't really care to. You know, I'm not that bothered about. I'd even say that make it with make it with you. It's not even the best version because I like it, but then oh, no, the I... desert sessions, which we can talk about at a different time, which I think is a significantly better version. Oh no, I like I I like this. This is this is sort of popier and it's cleaner. And it's just kind of sexier. Now I, I much prefer this version. Uh, does, anyone, does anyone think this album sounds like? Um, oh, well, in fact, Scott, I'd be interested to know: Is Homie going through a good time or a bad time? Because to me, this sounds like an album where he's having fun a little bit more than the last one. What, what's what's he what's he up to at this point? So yeah, no, I, I if I remember correctly, don't think it's particularly a great time. Actually, I, I don't. I think I think it was a little bit fraught, if I remember correctly. So I, I don't know. So. He's definitely, he's definitely, um, he's happy with the, the, the sort of how how he's 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 going to present the album. We've talked about the album art and stuff like that. He's got you know Trent Reznor uh, plays on on a the the self titled track that doesn't make it to the, the Except, many, uh, no. many versions of the album. <laughs> See, I I've got a theory on this. I think. Uh, Res, I think Reznor's all over this album, mm. and if you listen to those vocal harmonies on Tone the Screw. That could be a Nightingale song. Uh, it doesn't say anything like Queens. Out. It's it's too slow for uh, for Queens. Yeah, yeah. Like I said, you know, and I don't I don't know if he was on there and has like produced himself off it or something. It wouldn't be the first time because he did he did that with um, uh, One Thousand Homo DJs, the um, the Al Jorgensen offshoot where they he was on there. The record label kicked off, so they yeah they took him off and they just basically someone else did the same vocal. Um, and I, I, so I, I wonder if I wonder if he's kind of been on here and then been removed again. Well, I mean, maybe he's like he was on here because definitely in the next album, which we'll move on to, there, there is well, there's more of everybody, um, but there's definitely a lot. There's there's more of Trent Reznor um, when we move into like Clockwork. I know that Errol Garris was the last on the label, right? And then 
He, then he had a near-death experience, and they also ended up at Matador. I mean, I don't think those two things are related. Um, but moving into the next album, he had his near-death experience. Um, so the big, strong man who's going to kick your ass for saying something to one of his friends um, is suddenly vulnerable. They go to the, they go to back to an indie, a smaller label, Matador, um, release like Clockwork. What, four years, four years later, six, like six. That. six years later. Um, and then obviously, as you do, gets Elton John on because you know, is Elton John on there? I didn't, oh, yeah. I didn't notice that. Wow, <laughs> on the keys on Fairweather Friends, yeah, yeah, <laughs> brilliant. You didn't notice him by his subtle uh, ivory tinkling. Well, I guess it's just so unexpected, it just you know. I, I, and there was probably the bit that he started to go. Ah, do, 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 do. <laughs> well, he's, that's probably what it'd take for me to notice. <laughs> um, but yeah, on the new, so we got this new album. We got this album on Matador. Um, it's got Trent Reznor all over it on several tracks. It's got Sir Elton John. Um, it's got it's got protege Alex Turner of the Arctic Monkeys, which must have made you happy, Scott. Oh, <laughs> fucking disgusting. Um, <laughs> Scott has opinions about the Arctic Monkeys, wow. um, which, which I have been exposed to these opinions <laughs> many a time. Um, but like, we'll get, we'll get, we'll get him we'll back for the Arctic Monkeys episode for sure. Oh, we, oh please, 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 Scott, do. promise right now you can come back for the Arctic Monkeys one. You can swear. I mean, if you if you want uh, just antagonistic person, I'm I'm more than happy. Yeah. You see, interestingly, I I consider um, like Clockwork a. Um, a, 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 yeah, an album that goes along with Humbug, Arctic Monkeys. They're both, they, to me, they're, they're companion albums. I think you, uh, you, uh, the only one I know is the the or the most recent one I know is the the the, the sort of loungy one. Is that the most? The no, no, no. no. This, hum- so, so Humbug's one is produced by Homie, but it, the, right. they released at the same time. And it's like, well, spoilers. Right. I think of like Clockwork. It's like lock, like Clockwork, but not boring. <laughs> all right all right hold on hold on hold on this i'm coming out swaying for this fucking album. excellent I, I absolutely fucking love it oh thanks it's, it's I, i'm good well I, I feel more comfortable when i'm saying this is my favorite uh queens of the stones album i didn't expect anyone to agree with me on that though no no, no, no you I, bunch I, of q reading balls no no absolutely absolutely wrong uh it's great it's great uh yeah it's I mojo think- magazine man I, I mean, I may have been wrong when I said that the previous album, Homie Was in a Dark Place, like, like definitely by this one, he is. Um, uh, yeah, the, there's this mystery. So when I read the biography, it, it was still the accepted line that he'd had some sort of cardiac arrest or something like that. But it's, you know, if you de- delve deeper, it turns out that, that probably it was um, it was some sort of uh, alleged um, drug-related incident. Um, um, and- Scott, I think it's fine. You can generally you can generally okay. allude to uh, to rock stars <laughs> having drug incidents without having to pussyfoot around it. I don't think their lawyers are going to sue us. He's six yeah. foot four and <laughs> fucking massive. Do you reckon they when they recorded when they recorded "Feel <laughs> Good Hit of the Summer"? Do you reckon they were like, you know, you know, our, our mums might know we take drugs now. They might. They might. Uh, <laughs> up uh, down uh, something my uncle takes. <laughs> so. So I think Sai's absolutely wrong. This is a great album. Uh, I think uh, another... Uh, what, I, I want to do a playlist of songs where significant others convinced 
the lead singer to put the track on the album and it's one of the best ones uh, the vampire of time and memory is one of one of those on the album uh, and that was well now i think ex-wife probably dal that convinced him to to stick it on there um but i i think it's great um uh, but for me the i think it's all hits all the way through but for me the the, the I appear missing, uh, and then the coda afterwards uh, with the the self titled track, I think is just sublime musicianship. Okay, okay, De- debate me. <laughs> and, <laughs> and for you, Scott, as a Queens of the Stone Age and Caius fan, where does this sit in your best albums ranked? Yeah, to- totally. Listicle. It's 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 it's, it's my se- second favorite. If if I was only brave enough to suggest that it was better than Songs for the Deaf. It is. Like, uh, uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> it, it, it is. It's amazing. It's great. It's really, really good. Nick, Nick come on, come on. You, you're, you've been reticent throughout. You, all right, all right, all right. Sing, sing the praises now. Well, it is. Oh, no, you've set me up now. Because to be honest, <laughs> to be honest, like, um, it's, okay. it's, 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 it's not okay. that it's a great album. It's just probably the one that I got the most pleasure from listening to in the context of having to listen to all these fucking albums. Um, <laughs> But in my notes, I've got uh, the songs I wrote down. Uh, I sat by the ocean, and uh, if I had the tail. And the thing I was noticing was, you, and I think this actually started on Era Vulgaris. He's singing like Bowie. He's doing a kind of Bowie pastiche, um, you know, and, and that kind of works for me. And I've also written the words menacing and hazy. No idea what I meant there. I think, uh, I think, I think I had a pan fire in the kitchen shortly after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's a fair. I would, I would attribute those two adjectives to. Their, their overall sound, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, in fact, menacing, that's not the first time menacing no, no, true, has been used true. to describe them, um, which almost seems like a perfect segue here. We've got a band, and he's 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 feeling a bit low. He's, he's had his near-death drugs incident. Um, he's produced this album that some people love, some people don't, but it's definitely uh, a, a shift from the previous one. And where else would you go than to meet up with pop producer maestro Mark Ronson to make your final album. Um, you mentioned Franz Ferdinand earlier on, mm-hmm. Nick. Mm-hmm. Um, this is when I've written down Franz Ferdinand. Mm. Uh, we've got this Mark Ronson album that, I mean, I read some reviews and the reviews are like, no, Mark Ronson comes to Josh Homme. He doesn't make it a Mark Ronson album. No, this is fucking Valerie by Amy Winehouse. This is... <laughs> It's missing a few horns here and there, but it really is. I mean, it's it's brave. I'd say it's a brave album, and it is it is a sort of Queens of the Stone Age sexy disco album. If that's what he was trying to do, that's a perfect description of it. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's finish there. See you next week. On... <laughs> I need I need to throw some daggers at it. Wait. <laughs> oh, okay. Not. I know, I yeah. So I, you know, I love doing this immersion, but I, I was so disappointed by this album. And you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. The counter argument to that is that it's been clear since we we looked at Caius all the way through. Josh Homme has been at the absolute helm of this. Like, in in which album has he sort of bowed to anybody else? None of them. He's you know they've collaborated. We've had the super group. But in what way has he ever sort of just gone off to someone else's sound? So that's why it's kind of really odd to me that, that as you've said, Ewan, this does sound like a fucking Mark Ronson album. See, I, um, I, I, I think you are, um, I think you're wrong. 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so look, I for me, this this is one of my favourite Queens of Stone Age albums. Because um firstly he's been signposting this his entire time. We've kind of seen these little sort of jumps he's made back, the sort of nineteen seventies rock opera sounds, this kind of Rocky Horror show, there's a campness. It's you know, it's the bulge on the back sleeve of that Lou Reed album in the tight leather jeans. It's it's kind of macho, but it's also kind of a little bit flouncing about. And, you know, there are various points where you know this album's coming. And to me, um, as opposed to the last album, it's, don't get me wrong, like Clockwork sounds beautiful, but it's it's just such a mature record. It's so, it's so like, tasteful um, that it kind of just bores me a little bit. Whereas Villains is just... It is. It's a, it's a strutting disco album, and I think it's just one. It's like musical theatre. I think I think it's wonderful, and it's so camp. It's great. Um, this was twenty seventeen, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What year did Prince die? Ooh, uh, twenty sixteen, I think. <laughs> when he heard this album, when everybody no, died. No, because because I because I think because also Spoon's last album, which is the next pod, their last their last album was very princey. And this seems very Prince. Everyone, like everyone, yeah, everyone does a Princey album, don't they? Yeah, this is the Prince album, right? This is the, they just they just both seem to happen just around the time Prince left. Well, uh, I don't like Prince, so that explains why that works. Do you not at least do you not at least think that the album sounds fun? It sounds yeah, no, fun, no, no. I, I I like bits of it for sure. Um, I mean, I've got quite quite a lot of notes on it compared to the early albums. Um, the, the, Which you haven't shared with us yet, so Nick, please. Well, no, I, I mean it's just like you know, I just write down song titles and then and and then there's kind of a, like a hot take that I had while listening to it. So, for example, it just says the way you used to hand clappy glam. It says there's a lot, there's a lot of glam. There's a lot of well, let's, let's do this, Nick. Don't say the album. T- don't 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 say the song. <laughs> okay, Give us okay. A hot take. All right, okay, okay. Four tracks. I've given you one. Hand clappy glam. You've, that was the example. Okay. One, Bowie vocalizations. So we got to guess the song. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got clock's ticking. Oh, I wrote Bowie for one of them, but I didn't put it on. Um, domesticated animals. I don't know. No. <laughs> Damn it. It's uh, feet don't fail me. I don't think this is going to work. But anyway, I think you'll get the last one. I think you'll get the last one, but not this one. But we, we've committed to this little skit now, so let's fucking do it. <laughs> and 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 I was kind of disappointed that the song doesn't stay with this, but I wrote Vangelis since. Uh, is it the final track, Villains of Circumstance? No, nah, it's the one Ewan said. Domesticated no. Animals. It starts with Big Vangelis synths and then completely goes somewhere else, which is a bit oh, disappointing. I can play the same game. Wait, wait, wait. Here's, here's my hot take on one of the songs. Choose which one. Really annoying, really annoying fucking electronic horns. Ooh. Oh, the entire album. <laughs> okay, well, okay, so the last one, last one. Let's see if anyone fucking gets this. Rockabilly Swing. Yes. Oh, Head Like Haunted House. Yeah. I love that track. That was good. But then you know that's that's fucking yeah, ticking that, my that, boxes. That's that's like that's like eighties matchbox be like disaster, isn't it? That song. Yeah, I, I yeah no not for me. I my hot take on uh, Fortress, which I believe is a song for his daughter, was fucking Disney. It sounds like Disney. I mean, <laughs> you know, like Sai, you said like as it, you know, I don't win a flounce. I like a flounce. You know, we all like a flounce. Let's let's flounce now. Let's have a let's flounce together. <laughs> we're flouncing. We're flouncing. <laughs> but. But for me, you know, like, I don't want to hear that, you know, it just, 
It was. I it, see. I really bought into the. I really bought into the cheesy sentiment. But again, it's very Brad, isn't it? It's very homey. I'm going to look after you. I'm made of rock. It's that kind of vibe. It's also pretty much a retread of. Um, of is it into the hollow on? Ira Bolgaris. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's yeah, pretty, it's pretty, pretty much the same song, but I know I love it. And again, Vincent Circumstance. A, a lot of these songs, you know, you listen to it and you can imagine him you know, walking, like clicking his fingers as he, as he walks down the street on, on a musical set. It's that's, just... That's it, that's it. I, I will I will defend, yeah, I, I totally admit the, the final track, the Villains of Circumstance, that, that is a great track. And, and, and the opener's fun, if you like that kind of thing, but Villains of Circumstance, I think, is brilliant. Now I've got this sort of image in my head now of you know how you used to watch all the sort of I don't know old American movies and the trope would be the sort of the strong silent father figure in the nineteen fifties sixties who was who had a had did stuff in the war and was very strong and he's very silent. Um, sometimes they have a bit of a midlife crisis occasionally, and I'm imagining Josh Homme in the last two albums as being this strong, cool one from the past, leather jacket. Bike, motorbikes, desert, etc. Then he sort of, I'm the strong, silent one with my daughter and with my family, and just occasionally puts on leather trousers and goes to the disco. <laughs> Once again, I do not consent to any opinions negative about Josh Homme, <laughs> and uh, don't don't beat me up, please. <laughs> so we have we have looked at uh, briefly Caius and then seven um, Queens of the Stone Age albums. Um, there's been a there has been a thread throughout them, definitely as you say, Sai. I mean, the sound doesn't spectacularly change. You can see things coming. Um, personally, I think he sort of not so much lost his way, but did that thing Bowie tried to do a bit during the eighties of constantly trying to do the next thing, um, but not always needing to. Um, I didn't really enjoy the latter couple. Uh, I was definitely more in the middle. Um, that was me. Um, we all seem to have a different favorite album, mm. which is, I, think, was... I think it's a good sign when you do a band with, and the, you know between us, we've probably got their uh, whole discography covered in favorites. Well, I'm lullabies. Who? What? Yeah, weirdo. Nick? Uh, like clockwork. Uh huh. I'm Victor. Got. And yeah, uh, I think Lullabies is great, but I feel like I can't betray Songs for the Deaf, so I'll go with the. Oh, there you go. There you go. Wait, that's a good side. That's a healthy band right there. Mm. Yeah. Wait, was there anyone? I mean, they're shit, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) So we start on R, we've got Songs for the Deaf, we've got Lullabies. I mean, we're pretty much spread throughout the era. Yeah, that's pretty pretty good. Uh, I mean, the only, I think one important thing is that. You know, we haven't really discussed the desert sessions, which is fair enough. This is this is a, a little studio. If, if if you want to know more about the desert sessions, the Anthony Bourdain uh, visiting uh, Josh Homme and, and everybody at the uh, the Lancha, uh, uh, Rancho de la Luna, I think it's called, studio is just fantastic. They're all drinking tequila and, and cooking up food. It's brilliant. Um, nice. And you know, this is where they come up with a lot of the sounds that then make it onto the albums, and that's the the last we've heard of them so far. So it was. Um, the last uh, couple of sessions were the last that the, the homie released, uh, and that I, was I, last year. And there's a brief uh, summary. How many how many different ones have been released? So the last ones that they put out, I think, were eleven and eleven and twelve. I'll just check that. But um, yeah, they were they were they, they were kind of hard to obtain. And now only on on Spotify you can find like the last 
two or the last four. And it seems like it seems like there's fewer than there was on Spotify. I'm sure I listened right. to so, some of them previously and, and now I went to look for them and they just weren't there. So the so the one they put out last year was eleven and twelve and oh, nine that's there. nine and ten is now on, on Spotify, but the other ones are harder to find. I've listened to them all. Great. They're not Queens of the Stone Age. You can see why it's not the canon Queens of the Stone Age. And and, and a, who's a roll call of people that we've got people like Polly Harvey? Um, who else? Uh, the fucking comedian I didn't know was a musician that you like, the guy, the toast Matt guy. Matt Barry. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Matt Barry. I think Wayne are on there as well, aren't they? Wayne yeah, up? I think yeah. sure. Wait, Matt Barry's on it. I mean, Matt Barry's got an acid jazz album out now. So. I know, Matt, Matt Barry and Queens of Stone Age sounds like something I could get on board with. That, that was the last one. If you check out the last one, he's on there, yeah. Um, yeah, but but a great. Uh, I'm just looking. Yeah, so obviously the the usuals are, are are there that were in the band to begin with, and then you've got Lanigan. Yeah, Ween I think are, are there. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Many, many, many. Um, so there was lots of side projects. I mean, there's there's too many to mention. There's also people. There's also various offshoots uh, that Josh Homme did throughout his career. Um, he was with the Eagles of Death Metal guy at some point, and he was also he's played with, with Eagles of Death Metal, hasn't he? Played he's, with he's, Eagles he's of Death Metal, and but then there was there was also the one he did with the mem- oh what was them Crooked Vulture. So that was John Paul Jones and Dave that's Grohl. The- that that that's a great album. It's pretty it's pretty thick. Uh, you know, listening it takes maybe a couple of playthroughs, but it's a great album. You you're a you're a fan side. Yeah, I, I think it's the. It's a really annoying thing that these journalists say. It's the spiritual successor to Songs of the Death. Um, mm. In the fact that it's, you know, it, it is like a, it, it's him sound like he's in a rock band for the first time since then. But maybe we should stop thinking of Josh Homme as a rock guy. I mean, he was a rock guy, and his last few albums of deviations from pure rock, right? He's, he's pop rock. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being a poppy rock person. I mean, he writes tunes. I don't think he would disagree with you. Yeah, no, I, I think that's often something that, that, that artists try and shrug off to their detriment. I think, like, you know, you're, you're, you're making a comment, you know, like, like we've mentioned Nirvana, obviously, but like that, you know, you're, you're saying that you, you can write a hook, you know, you're saying that you can layer vocals in a way that, <laughs> that people want to listen to. And I don't think that's a bad thing. Um, okay, perfect. Um, the Anthony Bourdain thing, was that a video that... It's available on YouTube. Yeah. We can put a link to it in the description. It's probably more a sort of daily motion type clip, but yeah, you can find it for sure. Okay, if we can find it, we'll put a link in the description. Depending where you find this, um, we've done all the things. Um, we'll be we're going to try and get a few episodes out back to back over the next few months, and then Nick's going to have his revenge, and we'll have three episodes of the fall. Hell yeah! At some point. Which I'm not looking forward to. Um, particularly not looking forward to the vitriol the internet's going to throw at me when I have my opinions about Marquis Smith. But that's a different episode. I, th- I think so- you're over-egging that. Because I, I, I don't think that he's... You know, let's not do this now. <laughs> what? Mention that? He, no, no, we're no but it's, it's just, you know, not everybody who loves the fall thinks that Marquis Smith is some kind of fucking saint. That's all I'm going to say on it for now. We'll come back to that. Scott! Thank you very much for your time uh, putting everything together and coming on the pod. Well, we are getting you back when we do the Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> no, we're never doing the Arctic Monkeys. Um, oh, wow. Si, I, I, I would. Well, so would I. Happily. So why the fuck wouldn't it happen? It's up to you and me. 
Brilliant. Next next episode, Arctic Monkeys. Scott, stay around. Um, <laughs> and, and maybe Psy, because I think he likes them, just for the, you know. Well, I, I have I have opinions on them, so yeah, I'll enjoy it. I mean, I don't, to be honest, but fuck it. We did Queens well, of the Stone Age. Most of this last bit is going to get cut into sort of a smooth ending. So, um, so also, thank you, Sai, for coming on. Um, thank you. Also, if you're listening to this, um, we'll put some links in. And if you are in the UK and you want to buy some gin, the uh, aforementioned gin wanker, Sai, is your guy. Links in the descriptions. Um, myself and Nick will be back probably in a couple of weeks um, as we try and get a few episodes out back to back for the beginning of this year. Um, we're back in 2021. Hopefully, we know what we're doing a bit more this time. And it was great having you. Scott, thanks very much. You're welcome. Sai, thanks very much. Thank you. Nick, see you next time. Cheers. Bye. Ta-da. Well, there you go. That was Queens of the Stone Age. I hope you learned something besides how to pronounce Caius and Josh Homme. Thank you to yet another excellent curator in the shape of Scott Donald, who genuinely seems concerned that Josh is going to seek him out and kick the shit out of him, and this despite his obvious genuine fandom. Thanks also to Cy Sharp, founder of the Nautilus Smugglers Club, which you can find at nautilusbar.uk, and I know I'd join if they delivered to Budapest, but frankly, since Brexit, nobody does anymore. Thanks for that, Brexit wankers. Thanks also to my rambunctious co-host Ewan for his boundless enthusiasm and tireless work with the podcast Scissors, and to Jonathan Fisher for our theme tune. We hope you'll join us again soon for the next episode of the Temp Fans podcast, but until then, I'm Nick Hilditch, and I realise you're mine, indeed a fool am I.